Are you seeing something I'm not? Hey! I haven't seen a single track or piece of sign since we left the hatch. What the hell are you following? Where is the question? The what? The question mark, John. Where is it? You know what? You keep chasing after your own shadow. I'm going back. I know you do not want to show me. But you must. No, I don't have to show you anything. Then I'm sorry. is over but we have to go back down the hatch it's the lost rewatch podcast here on post show recaps question mark mike bloom i already am getting a feeling someone's going to go into our reviews and be like too much up talk from these <laughs> podcasters one star hard thumbs down on the up talk complainers by the way but here we are question mark as we like to call it around here huh uh here on down the hatch we are up to question mark this isn't a question this is a statement this is the episode that we are talking about here on Lost Down the Hatch as we are getting into the fallout of what happened to poor Anna Lucia and Libby. And we are exploring that through the lens of the second of three Mr. Echo flashbacks. Mm. We got to we got to find we got to go down the other hatch. This is the next hatch that we have to go down. Josh, I don't want to alarm you, but I think we might be being listened to right now. Are you serious? So carry on <laughs> your business. Yeah. Do you, are the are the tweets back to us like the uh, the online versions of the <laughs> you know marble notebook responses as to what we've been doing and talking about these you know, past some odd months? The marble notebook stuff of like watching everything on your screen for eight hours a day and typing furiously or scribbling furiously in the case of the the people in the Pearl Station. It sounds like my job. Like that's yeah. kind of what I do. <laughs> I was going to say, I know we got a question from Dallin Servo that was like, you know, would you rather work in the Swan or work in the Pearl? Uh, I would say I'd work in the Pearl because we already have a version of the Pearl in the reality TV universe, Josh, and that is watching the Big Brother live feed. Ah, so I know true, that, like, I would not be surprised if there was a version of Taryn Armstrong in the history of the Pearl <laughs> Station that existed down there and was doing, like, his own little updates to whoever the leader was of Dharma at the time as to what was going on in the, all the various hatches. Yeah, so, I, so I'd like to combine the two. What I, what I would like is I'd like the job of the Pearl— uh, where I'm just sitting in like a cushy chair watching TV all day, but I'd like a computer to type on because I'm better that way. Uh, my my long hand is no good, as I mm. recently discovered as I was uh, doing some writing exercises the other week uh, that I had to do by long hand, and by the third page, I was exhausted. 
I was exhausted. Uh, I was, I was, what? I was, uh, I was pretty tired by the middle of the first page, to be frank. I, I can't, I can't remember. I don't know if I've ever seen your handwriting. Are you a chicken scratch guy, or do you have like Damn. pretty good penmanship? Um, no, it's not great. It, it, it used to be a lot worse, but it's definitely it's like it's big, it's clunky, uh, mm-hmm. and especially if I'm just like doing note taking, it's really sloppy and all over the place. Yeah, um, so it's it's comparable to John Locke's map making skills. Is I what think. You're saying. I think. Well, my my artwork is for sure it is at at the very best. It's a John Locke skill set. Um, I I think if I sent my marble notebooks filled with handwritten notes off to the Dharma Initiative, they would want uh, a handwriting specialist. There should. I'm sure that there <laughs> or, is. Or they'd send it just straight to the garbage dump where it actually ends up being. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm, I'm, it might. It might be long there. Uh, to be honest, it might. It might be more fitting in the garbage heap. But um, we we're gonna we're gonna talk through some notes about question mark Mike. We're mm-hmm. gonna we're, we. I'm sure have questions about question mark. Uh, and I'm sure we have wild, ridiculous theories born from question mark oh, I, have, I have one that i i have in the in the <laughs> tank from a few episodes ago that i'm very excited to get to um that is very exciting to me um mike we're gonna get into the podcast before we do let's just thank our friends who are sponsoring this episode of the podcast support for today's episode comes from progressive insurance fun fact Progressive customers qualify for an average of six discounts when they sign up for Progressive Auto Insurance. Discounts for things like enrolling in automatic payments, insuring more than one car, going paperless, and of course, being a safe driver. Plus, customers who bundle their auto with home or add renter's insurance save an average of 12% on their auto. There are so many ways to save when you switch. And once you're a customer with Progressive, you get unmatched claim service with 24-7 support online or by phone. It's no wonder why more than 20 million drivers trust Progressive and why they've recently climbed to the third largest auto insurer in the country. So get a quote online at Progressive.com in as little as five minutes and see how much you could be saving. Auto insurance from Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Home and renter's insurance not available in all states. Provided and serviced by affiliated and third-party insurers. Discounts vary and are not available in all states and situations. Mike, uh, I don't know if you've got any questions for me before you want to dive into... To all of this? I mean, I guess the question that I have for you, and I guess maybe not a question, more so of like a frame that we can look through this episode with, because this episode from a placement perspective is a bit comparable to me with Dave. And I will say off the top, I think this is a much better episode than Dave. Uh, But I think that this is another one that you can sort of look at. Okay, last week, big ground-shattering episode of Lost that leaves a very open-ended cliffhanger situation, one of the biggest in Lost history, how do they follow up on it? And what I think will be interesting to look at with this episode is how they're able to do that, what they choose to emphasize, or maybe save for other episodes. Because we are really in the home stretch now. I really do feel like I have not uh, done my little separation of eras of the season yet until our feedback show, but this does feel like a distinctly different section of the season is now that we had this big climactic moment in two for the road, we are barreling down the home stretch here. And I I think it's going to be interesting to take a look as to like 
where this particular episode falls in the place of that home stretch. I, I mark it at Two for the Road. For me, Two for the Road signals the end of season two. Uh, and certainly the ending of Two for the Road really pushes us into that gear. But we're here, right? We're, we're at that breaking point for John Locke where he's given up, where he's done. Mm-hmm. He, he is out of Fs to give. There is a weariness to John Locke in this episode. And I think like um, some of the ways that he's acting in this episode are probably going to net him some, some LVP points this week would be my bet. Um, but that is not at the expense of Terry O'Quinn as an actor who I think plays the weariness of John Locke uh, so, so, so well. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll in get this episode. to it, but I mean, his, his journey as a character in this, in this episode... I, I would say in some points it's more intriguing than the flashback character Echo. I, I think maybe it's because we know the character for longer and we've seen his devotion to the Hatch. But I do agree that I think this episode is anchored by their duality and the fact that we've talked about this all the way back when we introduced Mr. Echo. This idea that these are two quote-unquote men of faith. But even within that term, there uh, is a bit of a spectrum to it. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to see them sort of flip-flop places within the idea of being men of faith, where John Locke is going to become the skeptic, and Echo is going to become, to quote Richard Malkin, the zealot, the devotee to the cause. Right. Well, I think it doesn't hurt um, that Yemi himself is speaking to Echo in this episode. Or is he? Uh, But to Mr. Echo, Yemi is coming to him, and this probably, for him, feels like the culmination of everything. So we'll talk right. all of that through. I think it's worth talking through now on um, this episode as we go forth into the jungle, written in, uh, written by Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse. So uh, top shelf right off the bat, originally aired May 10th, 2006. It centers on Mr. Echo. It is directed by uh, a director, a filmmaker named Darren Serafian. Uh, I I'm, I'm, hope I'm pronouncing that right. It was going to be, I believe, Mike, directed by uh, the acclaimed slash somewhat divisive filmmaker Darren Aronofsky. Yeah, I'm not sure when this was planned to play. Like, it was before season two or as they were working things out. But you can sort of see it in the cinematography, right? Like, we get a lot into dreams in this episode. Maybe more so than we have the entire season. Or maybe not since Deus Ex Machina. That's another thing I want to say about this episode also. It feels like a weird mashup to me of Deus Ex Machina and Do No Harm. Maybe it's because it's like going to the beachcraft combined with somebody dying uh, at Jack's hands. But there is a really weird style to it throughout, which is, if you've seen a Darren Aronofsky film, whether it's, what is it, like The Fountain uh, or Black Swan or anything like that. Did I ever tell... I forget if I've ever said my Black Swan story. Maybe I did. Black Swan Station. Yeah, well, basically, my Black Swan Station story is that uh, I believe it was maybe winter of 2009, 2010, when it was popular, and I went to go see it on New Year's Eve, but there were two theaters showing it right next to each other at different airings, and I walked into the wrong one, and so when I saw Black Swan, Josh, I saw the ending first. Oh, wow. And I was very confused. I'm like, okay, wow, this is Aronofsky. He just drops us into the middle of it. Then the credits started rolling. I thought, oh, okay. And so I ended up going back (laughs) in and and it made much more sense. So I guess I ended up accidentally making it like in media res. You should have watched the end of uh, Question Mark before you watched the rest of it as a a tribute. Just start Um, with that scene of uh, the camera pushing in on Michael Dawson. I think we we had enough. Iconic ending. Iconic. 
I mean, iconic. Someone say one of the 20 most iconic endings <laughs> that we put on this own season. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I would not want to go that far with, with Aronofsky. But another movie that he directed was a movie called uh, Pie, which I ended up actually watching with the great AJ Mass on the Hamster Factor, the film podcast we've done a while back. And yeah. That is a very similar, like, mathematical trippiness psychological thriller type of stuff and while that's not exactly along this line because again it's much more mythology based in what's going on with lost i can certainly see seeds that were being planted there i believe uh they say the reason why aronofsky did not ultimately commit is i believe uh rachel vice who he was seeing was pregnant and so he could not take the time to do it and so they brought in this other guy to take care of it, but his I think his handprint is certainly felt on this episode. Now, uh, when you say other guy, you don't mean one of the others. I mean, it might be. It's possible. I, don't, I'm, I do not know who this speak. man is necessarily, so maybe he is. Uh, Rachel Weiss, by the way, uh, lives down the street from me. Oh! No, I see, I, I, if you ever see her, ask her about the, the mummy films for no, me. I, I see her every once in a while, and she clearly doesn't want to talk to anybody, so uh, that, that's fine. You know, respect your privacy. Uh, but but I, see, do, I see her every once in a while, and it's like, question oh, about Rachel the mummy Weiss. films, please. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, uh, means that Daniel Craig lives down the street from me as well. This is a pretty cool thing. Uh, I have yet to see James Bond in the past. Uh, in, in so the you book. need to lock style. Please draw a map of all the celebrities <laughs> that live around you. Uh, there's a few. There's a few here in Brooklyn in, in my area that, that live around here. Um, all right. Let's get into question mark. Let's get into huh? Uh, as we coined it last week. Uh, and it begins with a dream, Mike, uh, as many great episodes of Lost do. And it's the return of Anna Lucia. Anna Lulu is back for a hot minute as Mr. Echo is like, uh, he's working on the church. Uh, so I guess it really isn't a Starbucks. Uh, he's working on the church. He was Unless to- Starbucks has gotten just very outright with like the cultiness of there that may, culture. There, there very well may be a Starbucks in the basement of the church. That is possible. Um, the, the, That's for, yeah, for convenience sake. You know, just like you go downstairs, you get a coffee, you go back up. Uh, so he's working on it and he was told to do it that's why he's doing it he was told to do it in a dream and Anna Lucia ghost Anna Lucia is like a dream like this one and then <laughs> Mr. Echo's like what and then she has this weird ass zombie look on her face as she's yes, like kind of, of like staring I was gonna say out of Resident face. Evil but I can't remember which Michelle Rodriguez in the Resident Evil yeah film yeah she was in okay. the first one she was in the first one uh, she does not survive Spoiler alert. Well, much like much like this, so I don't know if she similarly has a moment where blood is pooling around her chest and coming out of her mouth. Well, she all does of a get she does get bit in the first Resident Evil movie. I believe she turns, uh, and that's very sad. Uh, and here she turns from just like apparition to like bloody apparition, which is like you need to find John. I always thought that that was how she says like you need to find John, and like I couldn't tell if she was saying John or Jack. Of course, it's John, but the way she says like you need to help John coming out for John. Why are you sounding like oh god? Now I, I now the like a Ren and Stimpy character is what you're starting to sound like with your Anna Lucia voice. Stimpy, you idiot! Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ren Lucia coming out. Stimpy. Uh, so there's Anna Lucia, but that's the smoke monster, right? I know it's the butterfly thing. Is this a smoke monster? But this is a smoke monster, right? Because it's like well, the dream, and there's going to be the Emmy factor that we're about to get into. I'm not sure, though, because, and we'll get into this with the other section, but I wonder if another thing we can sort of look at this episode through the lens with is what if this is not the smoke monster, you know, effing with Echo or guiding him? What if it is a spirit of the island itself? Maybe it's it's like an, in uh, nah. cooperation with Jacob. Maybe it's Jacob's manifestation himself. But this Because ultimately, like, I'm thinking, why would the monster 
want to find, you know, the pearl necessarily. And I guess the question is, if it, led, it leads to Locke dispelling his faith, why would Jacob want Locke to find the pearl? But I, I wonder if this is more a pursuit for overall good than it is for getting these candidates just all scattered to the winds. Okay, so I guess like I, we got to get into it a little bit. First, why don't, we, why don't we listen into our first sound of the episode? Let's hear the Yemi dream. Let's get our first Yemi appearance in the episode, and then let's, let's talk more around that. I think that this is stuff that we need to drill down into for our, for our huh, discourse. Yemi? Hello, brother. Forgive me. I should have listened to you. You are right. You took the word. The work being done in this place is important, Echo. It is more important than anything. And it is in danger. You must help John. He has lost his way. You must make him take you to the question mark. John will not want to show you. So you must make him. Echo, there are many distractions, brother. But you must move past them. What is done is done. Do you understand? Yes. And Echo, bring the axe. Bring the axe. Yeah, of course. After all this, and I completely forgot it, but this whole axe runner we've been doing, starting with that secret scene in Fire Plus Water, that the axe would have yeah. so much pertinence in the arc of Echo. Yeah. Uh, there was the saw. He said, bring the saw. <laughs> Here's bring saw. the whole tool bench. <laughs> bring the toolkit. Uh, all right. So... We can't talk about this, I think, without talking about um, the the final Mr. Echo episode of it all, the, the, the cost right. of living, uh, and the fact that he is going to be led to his death, basically, by the smoke monster is Yemi. I think that that is fairly accepted. Um, I agree. That, that the Yemi that appears to him in the cost of living is the smoke monster. Why would we think that that's any different here in in this episode for me really the 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 best way of viewing this episode is viewing it as a piece of that arc of the smoke monster in all of the mr echo episodes is testing mr echo is testing to see if mr echo is going to be game to do whatever it wants because if it if he is going to be able to have that kind of sway over someone as powerful as mr echo I think that's the hot bod you want to lock yourself into forever. Like, if the choice is Mr. Echo or John Locke, I think you want to lock into Mr. Echo. Maybe that's just me projecting. But I think that that is a piece of what the smoke monster has been trying to suss out with with Mr. Echo. And when Mr. Echo defies him in his death episode, that's why he kills him. He's like, oh, so it's not going to work out. I got to stick with the John Locke plan. And here, by having Echo and Locke both being tested in this exercise of faith, I think it's a further exploration of which way is this going to go for me if I'm the man in black, if I'm the smoke monster, if I know that my ultimate plan is to convince one of these people to die so that I may access their form and push my end game into play. Um, why? What, what other read is there from your perspective 
for the Yemi appearances in this episode, other than that that's the man in black. Well, let me first ask the question about the fact that, you know, is there a, a, a configuration here that separates this smoke monster appearing in quote-unquote reality on the island versus dreams? Because I do think it is pertinent that Yemi only appears in dreams in this episode, as opposed to the two ep- other Echo episodes that we're talking about, where it's very clear, like, he is an apparition in front of him. Right. We don't see Echo wake up every time. And that feels something separate to me. I, I can't remember if we've talked about, like, oh, the smoke monster is, you know, coming into their dreams. I don't know how I feel about the smoke monster being Freddy Krueger, to be completely honest. <laughs> I kind of love it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I feel like there should be, like, some sort of separation there. Terry you know? O'Quinn would be a, an incredible Freddy Krueger, by the way. Oh, yeah. I just put some claws on him and yeah. have him start hobbling around like he does in this episode. Oh, he'd be so that, good. So that's sort of like the way that I'm separating it in my mind. I know Stefan Johnson uh, wrote in and asked, does the island send people dreams in the hope that they will protect it? Uh, so maybe it's this idea of like, maybe it's not even Jacob. It's the spirits of the island in a certain perspective. Because I think that what you're saying from a narrative perspective and an arc perspective works. I just, for some, for me, the sticking point is the fact that this does come in the form of dreams when we've seen the smoke monster influence people outside of dreams before and during and after and seemingly never really got into someone's head and was like, hey, I'm in your dreams and you should do this. That to me feels like more uh, maybe like, you know, the surreptitious guiding of a good force of the island than what the monster does, which is like blatant manipulation in the flesh to try to much like we saw with Dave, like denying the fact that any of this. Well, it's so interesting that you bring up Dave, Mike, because I was about to bring up Dave and I was going to say, then it sounds like you are on board with my time traveling Dave marrying Libby theory, because if the smoke monster is Dave, then that means either Dave was real and his body is on the island or the smoke monster can pull shit out of your brain and bring it into physical manifestation or uh, invade your head in that in that same way. Like, I think that if if Dave isn't real and if Dave is an imaginary friend of Hurley's and if we're going to accept that the smoke monster is Dave, then that's not too far away from what the smoke monster would be doing in this episode appearing in in dreams, appearing in the form of like nightmares and in your head. I mean, I guess so. I, I personally feel like there's still a separation as to like scanning your memory and, and producing a form as opposed to like actually worming your way in there, being an observer instead of an interferer. You know, like watching someone's We'll get memories. into the observers when we get into our fringe rewatch. Uh, oh boy, cannot wait for that. But you know, yeah. being able to sort of watch someone's memories play out and use that to influence your own shenanigans as opposed to blatantly invading somebody's subconscious and doing something, that still feels like two separate things to me personally. So I still cannot get on board with the fact, again, I, I feel like Dave loses its luster if it, if it is uh, not the smoke monster from a certain perspective or, uh, you know, if it is less of a, uh, a mind F and more of like a, will this guy's body happen to show up on the boat? And so I, and his friend happens to be here. I, I feel like there's, I don't know, there's some sort of metaphysical disconnect for me. So, and I, I think that one other reason why I, I uh, would like to at least support for now this idea that like maybe this is not the man in black and the island in general is the fact that we really haven't seen the forces of the island. And I, I want to see that, you know, if we're talking about two equal but opposite forces yep. in the one stone is white, one stone is black 
on the island. We have seen so much of the man in black. I, I would like to see some of the goodwill of the island. No, I like that as well. Well, so, I mean, in what I would really like is let, let's track the episode through these two lenses. As we go through it, let's, mm-hmm. let's try and see like, what would make sense? Is it the monster? Is it the island speaking? I, I really do wish, uh, and, and this may be a mark against the episode ultimately. Uh, and it's certainly a much bigger offense to me in further instructions, uh, an episode that gets name checked in this episode. Right. Um, when uh, we get the pot farmer flashback for John Locke and that episode, you could just tell it wants to be weirder. It wants to be mm. a really strange episode. It's got the Boone, you know, fever dream. This episode's got a fever dream quality about it as well. Um, and it it really, it wants to get you there. Uh, and it just, for whatever reason, be it like network stuff, they're just unable to do it. It's going to hold it back a little bit in my mind. Because I think like the flashback component here, there's some stuff to talk about. Um, but I think it's the weakest stuff of the episode for sure. Uh, and I think it's going to, for me, make this uh, handily the, uh, the bottom tier Mr. Echo episode of the three. Uh, and I think that this is an episode that could be bursting at the seams with strangeness and weirdness and become an elite 4.2. It's not going to get there for me um, because I think that something is holding it back. But what you're talking about and this idea of like the island being able to like manifest itself, I bet that there are instances of that across Lost that I haven't picked up on before that could be uh, explicated by people. I would love to hear those explanations. Yeah. We, we, will, we will talk that angle through as we go through the podcast here today. But if you've got thoughts on that matter, down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. We'll very happily get into that uh, whenever you want to track it here on the podcast. I think a big example of that would be the disparity between what Mr. Echo saw when he saw the monster and what John Locke saw when he says, what I saw was a big beautiful light and that is not that is not what i saw says mr echo is there something else out there that we never see um is possible is possible so yeah and so and and i think you know from that perspective even looking at the aforementioned clip that was just played with yemi and echo it it can can color things so differently if you're looking at it from the smoke monster angle this is clearly a manipulation of like i want you to get john Locke down there uh, because, you know, I want to drive him off the hatch. I want, you know, this island to be destroyed and the candidates to be destroyed. So that's why I'm sending you on this mission. But if you see, if you look at it as like Jacob or the island distilling itself through the the uh, the manifestation of Yemi, the whole like he has lost his way stuff takes on so much intriguing weight to it. Uh, this is the guy who I was, you know, had had put the burden on to to bear the weight of protecting the island, and he is getting lost right now. Mr. Echo, you need to be the one to either guide him back or take on the burden yourself. All right, let's keep going through the episode. Uh, the the crew of Sawyer, Jack, and Locke and Kate, they're all just going to be bicker, bickering their way back to the hatch. Uh, great Sawyer nickname here of Gimpy McCrutch. Gimpy McCrutch, yeah. They're just all like fighting about everything that's going down. And here comes Michael pouring out of the door. Uh, so be, ah, he shot me! He shot me! He's gone! Oh my god! I'm like, oh, you bastard, Michael! It was you! You're the plant! We should have known! Exactly, you were the plant! So, so well, how do we? Because I guess should we grade Michael's acting performance, or should we grade Michael's acting performance in relation to how much everyone is uh, just easy to believe him in this moment? Well, it, it's really funny. Uh, I mean, funny is a relative term, but I, <laughs> I, I I was thinking about this. So he's going to say like it was like twenty, thirty minutes ago when he left. 
So what what was Michael doing all that time after he had shot himself in the arm? Because he times it so perfectly with when yeah. everybody shows up, he just like bursts out of the door. Was he just on the other side of the door, like waiting for people? He's like, all right, all right, I'm, all right, get hyped up, get hyped up. Ooh, What's your ooh, motivation? Breathing exercise, breathing exercise. Red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, Peter Piper. Yeah, like just like what what is he doing to get his performance geared up? Because uh, it definitely feels like he was there for a little bit. Um, yeah, I, I wonder if it was a matter of like, I mean, I guess thank God that this quartet was bickering the entire way, right? Like if they got the jump on Michael, maybe they get a more legitimate performance out of him because he would be legitimately spooked. But yeah, I, I do wonder, like maybe he set up the scene a little bit to make it look even worse. Mm-hmm. Or maybe he was just so shell shocked at that point that he's like, I don't know. I also wonder, you know, maybe in that 20, 30 minutes, because we talked last time about how obviously it was not in the plan to shoot someone like Libby. And so maybe he's using that time to come up with this foolproof strategy or story that he's going to give them. But yeah, I would like to see maybe a, an, a featurette as to what Michael did with those 20, 30 minutes that he was waiting between that group showing up and when the deeds actually were done. Uh, so speaking of the deed being done, Sawyer is going to look at Anna Lucia's dead body. He's the first one to see her. And he's like, oh, uh, uh, Sawyer's very upset. Everybody's reactions, terrific across the board. Yeah, um, it, it's it's a, again, I mean, it's terrific a, is the wrong word, but you know, like this impactful. is this is a moment. It's a it, it, it is a really impactful moment um, coming into the hatch and uh, coming in and seeing that Anna Lucia is coming out of life, that she's dead, uh, that she's been shot, that Libby's on the ground and, and Sawyer's going to go to her and he's going to be the one who gets like poor Libby blood all over his face uh, when she like spits out that she's alive. And that's when like Michael's look is going to turn uh into like this serious concern of like oh god she could out me um the whole sequence is is really really compelling from like the looks on jack's face kate's face Locke's face a lot happening in this moment in this moment i agree and it's a gruesome image to walk in on and a fantastic echo pun unintended of just the shell-shocked aspects that we all felt at the end for two for the road uh i mean i'm gonna go back to the the other section for a second, because I believe we had a, a question about this from Daniel Brennan, who said, were you a little underwhelmed by Jack and the gang's discovery of what had happened in the hatch? Uh, and basically says that, you know, two for the road was a really crazy, unsettling moment in the show's history. But after finding Michael, the group, quote unquote, mostly keeps their cool. Kate seems stoic. Jack does Jack things. The fact that Libby is still alive is sort of affected in adding a jolt to the scene. But then Jack gets right back to being in control of things. And I'll sort of agree with him somewhat in that. I love this scene. I totally agree with you in that. But I will say what also sort of brings down this episode for me is I'm a little, not necessarily disappointed, but I'm a little surprised in the way that they choose to like have these characters in particular emotionally reconcile this very shocking series of events in that they don't really. Like we're going to get stuff at the end with that montage, as you mentioned, but Maybe it's because they want to move along with the action and the stuff going on in the Pearl. They don't really give time to these characters to, like, sit in what the hell just happened. We get it from Jack for a second, but he obviously has to change into doctor mode. But part of me kind of feels like there there was missed opportunity there. And it does feel, to a certain extent, like the groundbreakingness of the two for the road ending. It's not necessarily brushed under the rug, but the fact that it is not the main focus of this episode is comparable to me of Dave, where you have this big Benjamin Linus reveal and they sort of reserve it for a B plot. I felt similar pangs here personally. Yeah. So, so that's, that's, I I hear all of that. 
I'll try I'll try and devil's advocate it a little bit um, because I, I think that Mr. Echo is probably the, the one who should have like the biggest personal connection to the people who we've just lost of the people who discover them. Um, but I, I think that it's it's less about the people themselves who are dead and more about what that says about the situation. And I think that that's because there isn't a lot of closeness between most of these characters and uh, the dead party in Anna Lucia and the dying party in Libby. Um, I think Jack obviously has a connection to Anna, but he is focused on Libby and the fact that she is uh, on her way out and he wants to make her as comfortable as humanly possible on the way. Um, With Kate, never really had a connection with either of those characters. The whole grandeur of this entire thing, I think, is what's really weighing on her. With Sawyer, obviously, uh, it's, I think, a combination of uh, Kate and her reaction. I think it is his reaction to seeing Anna, who was so full of life with him not long before this, to be now gone in the way that she is, uh, I think is is very traumatic for him. I think that Sawyer in this episode, by the way, really underrated component. Um, he's mm-hmm. he's going to, you know, with no complaint other than observation, he's going to remark upon what Jack's plan is for him, which is a very good plan from Jack. But without complaint, Sawyer's going to do it. I think Sawyer's... Um, the thing that I've said about Jack and Sawyer for a long time is they're kind of ships in the night on this journey from Jack is uh, Sawyer is a hero disguised as an asshole and Jack is an asshole disguised as a hero. And they're sort of like on like they're, they're passing each other on that over the course of the show. And that's not like even ultimately necessarily their landing points, but that's an aspect of those two characters. And I think that that heroic part is coming out in Sawyer here where he's a good person. He doesn't want anyone to know that he is. He's going to actively act like an asshole and do very bad things because he has the capacity to be pretty good. And I think that that is coming out in Sawyer's reaction uh, to all this. Do I just have to go back and say, coming out of Sawyer um, in his reaction to all this? Idiot! You know, with Locke, this is a big crisis of faith. That's the big thing. He doesn't have a huge personal connection to Libby. He has a little bit of one to Anna because they've spent enough time in the hatch for the last little while. But they're dead, and there are two more bodies that are added to the pile of people who are dead because of John Locke. Whether that's Boone, uh, who fell out of the plane and died, the, uh, a sacrifice the island demanded, as he wearily says later on in the episode. Or Shannon, who is dead, at least in some part, because of everything that happened with Locke kind of spiraling her out. Um, and now Anna and Libby are dead, largely because Locke feels like he, he bungled the Henry Gale stuff. Uh, he bungled the the protection duty. He he shouldn't have lied for Anna. He shouldn't have he should have done this. He should have done that. I think it helps that Anna and Libby are relatively new characters in the space of the eight one fivers. You know, I I think that there just isn't a ton of personal connection to them. It's more like Hurley is obviously going to be devastated by this, and people are going to be devastated for Hurley. Less that it's like, oh man, I can't believe it's Libby who's gone. They didn't really know her yet. I think that the whole incident is still severely traumatic to walk into. But I think that one of the things um, that is most impactful about the Anna and Libby deaths is less about Anna and Libby as characters specifically because we didn't have a ton of time to really latch on to certainly Libby, uh, less so for Anna, I think more we got uh, the chance to connect with her. Um, But it's more about that shock value and it's more about how someone we trusted could do this. Uh, And I think that the ways in which these deaths 
mirror back onto these other characters and what it's causing them to chew on, what it's causing them to work on. Um, I think that that's all pretty fair and still relatively reasonable within the fact that they just were not literally that close to the two Mm. people who are gone. That makes sense. I mean, I think with the lock inner monologue that you're imagining, I would have liked that inner monologue to be outer. Yeah, I, think I that's, agree. That's a I great agree. line of logic, but it, it would have been great to have some line from Locke being like, I can't believe that happened, you know, considering his frustrations. He is going to say, like, they're dead because of me, right? Like, isn't he going to say something like that when he's talking to Mr. Echo that, like, uh, Anna would be alive if Jack, uh, if, if I told Jack what Henry did? And the way that he's going to be talking about a sacrifice the island demanded. It's like him, like, mocking his own past false wisdom. So I think it's there. It's just not explicit. But I do think it's there. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that I, because I, I, that's such an interesting thing. Like we said, there's so much interesting stuff going on with Locke here that I, I would like that to be embellished because you do make good points in that, like, you know, Sawyer is probably the one that knows these characters the best, and he probably has the most interesting reaction out of those characters. I, I wonder maybe maybe what's missing for me is also the Michael of it all. In that, like you mentioned, you know, his surprise party thing where he falls out, he's going to have a scene with Hurley later, and he's going to have something at the end. But I wonder if it's like, because Michael was so involved in the end for two for the road, like you want to see some more, either it be manipulation or him being placed under a microscope. And we're going to get that over the next two episodes, but to have it be a bit of like a delayed reaction to all that, or at least it being brought up in a delayed aspect feels, uh, uh, I wouldn't say inappropriate, but just feels like we talked about with Dave again, this idea of like, they had so many episodes, they had to, you know, have an episode to really pad out, uh, what's going on and not to say that this episode is padding but i can imagine maybe if they were able to control the episode order maybe some of this stuff from three minutes in terms of michael's immediacy of what needs to happen would get put into this episode rather than him just sort of standing hanging around the hatch for the entire episode um so mr echo's gonna pray for anna uh they're gonna be trying to figure out what the hell to do with libby uh michael's gonna say ben left maybe like 20 minutes 30 minutes ago jack wants to go after them uh sawyer does not like that plan who's gonna be taking care of libby while you're off playing daniel boone uh and so which i believe uh Locke was daniel boone several (laughs) episodes ago so again the jack Locke comparisons are not just coming out of anna lucia's mouth yeah see boone's legacy it's strong here on lost still uh mr echo's gonna say hey i can track and Locke, you, the guy in the crutches, you can track too, right? We'll find his trail together. Uh, obviously, I'm not surprised. I, I mean, I wonder, do you think Jack is sort of like letting Locke go because it's a Jack Locke thing? Because otherwise it's like, no, don't take the, the man on Gimpy McCrutches you know into the, the jungle. Get John Locke out of this situation. Jack is probably thrilled at that. Exactly. It's like, you know? well, we, we made a truce right now, but still no Locke is a good Locke right that's, now. That's, the best Locke is no Locke for Jack at this moment in time. Uh, so, so Echo is going to see opportunity there, right? Like he had the dream. Yemi told him to, uh, to, to, to find John, help John. You need to find John. Anna told him you need to find John. I think that's another piece of it, too, with Echo and his reaction to what's happening with Anna and Libby, is he is uh, a man of reluctant faith, and I think that this is a moment where that faith is being galvanized because it's coming in the form of his brother, uh, which is another reason why I I guess like you, you really can see it in the parallel tracks of like, one, it's the island pushing him towards something greatly important because if the button stops being pushed, we all go kablooey and somebody's got somebody's to do something about that. So, Echo, please, uh, and you'll believe us if this news comes to you in the form of someone you really, really, really trust. That being said, 
Smoke Monster could be testing that as well through through Yemi as well because he knows that that's going to be somebody that Echo really trusts. Either way, irregardless, uh, Echo is uh, is going to buy into the Yemi dream, and because he's going to buy into the Yemi dream, and it's going to you know inspire him so much to go and find John Locke and wake up in the dead of night and go to the hatch, and he's already had the vision of Anna being dead. Uh, I think he's like to some degree like braced for it when he sees yeah. it. It's like confirmation of like okay, the vision is real. Something very important is happening right now. And you would think that like maybe that's very cold of Echo towards Anna, given that they had spent all that time together. It's not that it's not cold, but also don't forget that Mister Echo has seen a lot of dead people in his life. Yeah, he's also created many dead people in his life. So this is for for to some degree this is old hat for the guy. Yeah, well, that's the thing as well. I think also Mr. Echo has been one of the more stoic characters, right? I mean, this is uh, someone who Anna Lucia felt confided in to weep to in the other 48 days. So I think as much as we would want to see him, like, you know, throw himself over Anna Lucia's body and, and start weeping, I just feel like that's not necessarily who Mr. Echo is as a character to certain aspects. Like, we'll see later on that, like, I think anytime you bring up his brother, that's when you get a fiery Mr. Echo out of you. Otherwise, like... He's pretty complacent, I yeah. would say. He's pretty even-keeled. Yeah. Uh, so he's going to... He, he This just fell into his lap, the opportunity to, to take John Locke out of the hatch. Doesn't really care about tracking down Anna's killers. He wants to follow the line. Uh, in flashback... Uh, we're gonna we're gonna see Mr. Echo meet up with uh, the the passport huckster, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. So he's in Australia. I will still say that maybe one of the bigger mysteries of Echo is like. So obviously, we're gonna find out in the cost of living, right? That he like goes to London at a certain point to fill out Yemi's residency there. I guess Australia was the next stop on the tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> he sort of is still in the in the case of Libby of we don't know how the hell he ended up getting to Australia. But right now, he's a Father Tunde, so he, much like Sawyer, is taking on some other names here. And now he's taking on another passport, too. So was, was he going to fly to L.A. to be a part of this guy's offer to, like, do stuff with whatever people he's consorting with? Yeah, I guess. Or, like, he was like, if you go, like, I got I got the hookup, man. Uh, and what kind of work are you talking I don't know. Stuff, says passport yeah, what does that douche. mean? I don't know. I hate this guy. I hate passport douche. I mean, he's got, like, a weird mullet going on. He has this, this like, seedy Australian aspect to him. I don't know. Maybe he's, like, in a... Maybe he's talking with Hibs uh, at a certain point uh, to get (laughs) money from Frank Duckett. Yeah, he's part of that Tampa job episode. uh, Yeah, I'm not sure. Caldwell, I think, is the guy's name. Uh, Uh, He's he's passport douche. He's passport douche now and forever. Amen. Uh, He's going to give Echo the passport... And I, I, I guess the I, I don't know like I don't know why Echo needs a fake name because like the, the name on the passport is not Mr. Tunde uh, or certainly not Mr. Echo it's like Ulu Odudua yeah. or something like that so unless he the doing stuff like unless he really intended to be doing criminal activities I don't understand why he would need to change his name yet again unless he keeps like dining and ditching all these well, various I do, uh, I do think that that's it I do think that like his his plan is he's going to disappear into America uh, so he doesn't want to have um you know, ID that that connects him to where he was just coming from. That makes sense to me. Uh, makes sense to me that he, his plan here is that he's just going to go away forever. Uh, he's not coming back. He's running mm-hmm. away from the church life. You can see he's exhausted with it. He doesn't really. This is what we were saying. You know, we've been saying all along, all podcast long, uh, talking through season two. Mister Echo is very wearily here for this, right? Like this is something yeah. that he feels like. 
Yemi died and I have to honor Yemi, but I don't love that I have to honor Yemi in this way. And like once he gets to the island, I think that's where the faith is really reactivating. But here he's just going through the motions. He's going through the motions of this stuff. Um, really does not does not care about any of it. So I think, you know, the island is what's going to push him in his final weeks of life to to be someone who's operating from a place of of true faith and like uh, somebody who who truly believes in like vision and stuff like that, um, but I think uh, the man that we're seeing here in Australia in Australia is uh, is somebody who would be pretty happy to just like dip into L.A. and call it a day. Yeah, so it's like he very much has like the motive of gin at this point, right? Correct. Of like, my, I want to fly over to like leave my burdens behind and like slip under the radar and live out my days. Yeah, and who knows what he's going to do when he gets to America? Uh, that's why he wants to know what kind of stuff like. Maybe it's something that's compatible with my history. I don't know. Uh, but either way, uh, the trip to the States, it's being postponed as, uh, as Mr. Echo's uh, boss here at the church. The Monsignor. The Monsignor is going to show up. We've got a miracle on our hands. Uh, a young woman uh, has died and come back to life. Uh, we know that this is going to be the daughter of the psychic Richard Malkin. Shout out Psychic to, in quotations. Shout out to Richard Malkin, who's going to show back up in this episode. We'll have stuff to talk about with him. Uh, um, but what I had never caught until this this go around is that his daughter, who died, she drowned, and then she came back to life in the middle of an autopsy, and everybody thinks that it's the confirmation of a miracle. Her name is Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is this the, is this is this somehow time traveling, Charlotte? Mm, I don't know. I, I think the hair would have to be red. And if so, like, I feel, I don't know. Does that mean that Richard Mulkin, was he also time traveling? Like, was he the yeah. Dharma father? Yeah, the uh, Dharma father, he's from, like, the Hurley Libby future era. I'm not sure. What, what I do want to say about Libby's first husband. What I do want to say about the Charlotte stuff is, I don't know. I don't feel like it's not coincidental that we have this and mystery sock of it all in the in the past, like, three episodes. You know, and I, I wonder, I personally think that the Charlotte stuff is true, not only just because of what she tells Echo about Yemi, but because Isaac has already said, talked about how everything's a little funky in Australia because of these magnetic abnormalities and the geology of it all. And I wonder if that sort of manifests itself, like maybe Australia, Josh, is its own miniature island <laughs> where that, a lot of the properties that we, we see sort of come out with the weirdness of the island over the course of Lost, sort of is contained in a mini form in Australia, whether mm. it's people coming back to life, whether it's people being healed. I personally think that this Charlotte story is completely true because it's something that we we see to a certain extent in Lost. And, you know, that's since we sort of see connective tissue in the form of the magnetic pockets, that it could be possible that other stuff that happened on the island might be able to happen in this weird little area. All right, let's put a pin in this, because we're going to talk about Richard Malkin in a little bit, and I think that that'll be a great continuation of the conversation. Uh, some, some, some food to chew on, some thought food, Mike. Got a meal ahead of us. Uh, all right, so on the island, Echo and Locke are off on this trail, but it's not the trail. It's not the Henry Gale trail. Mm. Locke says, I, I don't know what you're following. Uh, and, and that's when Echo is like, all right, so here's the deal. Question mark? Yeah, I mean, we heard this in the intro, uh, and it's, it's finished off, so Jotlock is, of course, in complete denial at first about this, or at least very reticent to tell Echo anything, and, of course, is uh, punctuated by a fantastic 
uh, maybe on the John Locke beatdown counter that will eventually do, Echo just straight up headbutts John Locke <laughs> and knocks him out. Yeah, he just face bashes him with his own face and knocks him clean out. Uh, and uh, he wakes up a little while later beside a campfire and the conversation continues. You hit me. Why did you... Because you were being difficult. Are you insane? No. Anna Lucia, your friend, was just murdered, and you... Anna wants me to help you, John. Help me do what? Find the question mark. You don't even know what you're talking about, do you? No. But you know what I am talking about, John. And that is all that matters. Here. Here, you want to find your damn question mark? Here. Here, this is it right here. Here, take it. Take it because it's nothing. It's a memory. It's ten seconds of nothing. This is your hatch, yes? It's not my hatch. If the swan is where we came from, then we go that way. We shouldn't even be out here. Anna Lucia would still be alive if I just told Jack that Henry attacked her. Now she wants us to go here, John. She wants us to go here, John, together. She said this in my dream. Of course. Tell me, John, haven't you ever followed a dream? So, yes, he has. <laughs> yeah, a lot. He's done that many, many times. So Anna wants Echo and Locke to follow the question mark. Um, if the island is, like, manifesting Anna Lucia, uh, then that's got to be a full-on hoax. I think that the Anna is telling John, uh, is telling Echo to go and find the question mark thing definitely falls much further in line with the smoke monster for me. Because if it was the authentic Anna Lucia... I think the authentic Anna Lucia ghost would be like, go find Henry Gale. He is a bad dude. Also, Michael shot me. You know, <laughs> I think like she Yeah, would but then Echo would be like, Jack, be like, no, Michael's fine. Don't worry. You know, like I think that she would be pretty dead set on like, hey, avenge me. I was just murdered. Uh, so I don't buy Anna Lucia being uh, instantly one with the island and telling Echo like, hey, you got to go help John Locke. That doesn't yeah, seem like that, that would be a not, priority but, for Ghost Anna. Yeah, but I would also say that this is also not Ghost Yemi. Like, I feel like the island, much like the smoke monster, could put on someone's visage to do something. And I can imagine that the image of Jacob is not necessarily something that's come up and lost yet, not only because the actor hasn't been cast, but because, like, it's something that wants to be sort of put at arm's length until absolutely necessary. I could very easily see the island copying Anna Lucia's image to spread a message, considering we just talked about their relationship, about the fact that they really saw eye to eye, that Anna Lucia, for a good long time, was one of the only, that was one of the only people she was going to trust, was Mr. Echo. So if there is someone to deliver the message, I feel like your top two people are Anna Lucia or Yemi, in my opinion. Okay, well, I think I think that the the whole idea that we are setting up here of John Locke being really upset about uh, going off on this, this, you know, this fool's errand, uh, that this is not something that he signed up for. He thought that he was going to fix his mistake 
and instead he's on some sort of Echo Vision quest. It's just so interesting that in this episode he's Boone and Echo is Locke. Yeah, I was I had that uh, that comparison as well, and I I really want to drill into Locke's I'll call it dream shaming. This idea of like, oh yes, of yeah. course, you had a dream, so therefore we need to go out there. Is that just from experience? Like you said, is it just from the fact that he once had this with Teresa falls up the stairs, Teresa falls down the stairs, literally got Boone's blood on his hands and has been regretting it, and as a result is is hesitant to trust any sort of message he feels the island is sending him? Yeah, he's a, he's a hypocrite, right? Like that's one yeah. of the, that's one of the great things about John Locke as a character. You know, it it it, it doesn't always look good on him, but it, it makes him a fascinating person to me. Um, but he's a hypocrite. He's a hypocrite, and right now he's feeling like really let down. Like his specialness is is uh, pretty uh, blunted at the moment, and he uh, feels like if my destiny was to go down into this underground cavern and push a button and get tricked by some bug eyed twerp, and that's like my destiny, uh, then that sucks. And destiny can't be real then, because that's not what I thought I was meant to do. And I think he's in a, this place where now two people are dead, uh, and he links that to himself. And uh, this idea of like following visions makes him feel like really ashamed. Like I think it's it's very much projection uh, in mm. terms of uh, what he's putting out onto Echo. Yeah, right now. it's it's very much like a, oh, I remember when I used to do that. Mm-hmm. Like I, I've grown up now. But I will say, as much as I agree with like the uh, Lock Echo Boon Lock comparisons. One moment I did find really interesting supplanting that is that you don't know what you're talking about, do you? No, John, but you do, and that's all that matters. That feels like for a hot second that Echo's taking the Boone spot. That, you know, Locke tells this whole story and Boone's like, okay, you know what? If you believe in this, I believe you. Let's keep going. And it right. shows, you know, Echo's... The journey of Echo in this episode is very intriguing in that this is a man of faith who is who has been told to believe in John Locke and when those beliefs crumble and the man he's supposed to believe in loses his own belief, Echo takes that burden upon his own shoulders, which is what we know of Echo, right? It's why he took on his brother's occupation begrudgingly. And so while it also does track for the character, I think it's a really interesting sort of tete-a-tete with their relationship and how this status shifts and reverses even over the course of a conversation. Um, okay, so in a flashback, Mr. Echo, who has been assigned... Uh, this like sort of like detective assignment of like, is it a miracle or is it not a miracle? Yeah, I, I do wonder, uh, and maybe it's, you know, things are a bit different in the religious variety. Like, is this within Echo's job? I don't know. <laughs> Your job description for him to like essentially play private eye and make sure that it's a real miracle. It's like an episode of Evil. Uh, the CBS show that actually except, does. Except uh, Henry Gale is not in this one. Yeah, sadly. Uh, he's just left because he'd be great. Have you watched that show at all? I have not. No, and I, you know, I see Michael Emerson on it, and I'm like, let me check it out. But I feel like it's great. It, it's a great show. So it, is it? Is it about like evil incarnate so, come to life? So, so evil is just to do a quick plug on evil because it's a show that I really, really enjoy. Uh, it is. Uh, it is about a priest, and I think that she's like a criminal profile or something like that. Um, and they team up to investigate whether a situation that appears to be like uh, a possession or something demonic is actually, uh, or if something is a miracle, or if it's explained by science. Uh, And and the show does not yet seem to want to side one way or the other all the way. 
like there's stuff on the show that makes it really hard for me to imagine that it will not eventually have to choose the side of like, yeah, there's some weird shit out there in the world uh, or else everybody's crazy uh, and they're all having shared hallucinations of stuff. Um, but it's it's great. And Michael Emerson's on it and he plays somebody who makes Benjamin Linus seem like one of the nicest people on the planet. Uh, the guy he plays on the show is like a disgusting piece of shit. <laughs> He's just really, really, really gross and terrible. So this um, is just like a continual test of Michael Emerson roles of like, how much can we like him when he plays evil people no he's very intentionally unlikable on the show like i think okay. he, he's basically irredeemable on the show uh whereas like there's some like you know attempt at redemption and rehabilitation for benjamin linus on this i cannot imagine how they will try to thread that needle should the show ever uh choose to go there with the michael emerson character uh but it starts with mike coulter uh who is luke cage in the luke cage uh netflix show uh and uh katja herbers who was on westworld she was briefly mm-hmm. in the final season of the leftovers really really great show i love it big fan big fan uh one season so far we'll see uh what the what the future holds for for that but basically like what what mr echo is doing here is is that job it's like is this a miracle or is this not a miracle and it is like a mission from the church on the show evil so this is my long uh tv church way of explaining that i think that this is part of a job but i'm jewish and i have no idea (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly i have have no clue (laughs) I mean, I guess one of the benefits of Mr. Echo only having one more flashback episode is because it gives us two Jews less opportunities to just screw up what Catholicism and Christianity is supposed to do. I have do. no idea. I've got no idea, if I'm being completely honest with you. Uh, so uh, the guy is going to be like, yeah, so she woke up during the autopsy. Here, listen. And he plays this tape. And thank you, Mike Bloom. You were responsible for the sounds this week for not pulling the audio from that. Because uh, the, the surgeon says, like, I never want to listen to that tape again and that is like what i put in my notes immediately when i when i was watching the episode I was like yeah me neither and then i went and saw which sounds he put in for this episode I was like, thank god thank you mike yeah because i mean for those that might not remember it's literally uh, like it's it's like they're, they're remarking on an autopsy and then you and just this, hear, and this guy's like also flirting on with his uh, associate as well while he's doing it <laughs> Is that why he doesn't want to hear it again? It's like, it's too awkward. Yeah, I don't want to get me too'd for this. Yeah, uh, but yeah. I mean, so then I guess, thank God Charlotte wakes up or it could have been a much worse situation. But yeah, yeah, there's just screaming going on. Ian and Valerie McTavish are all over the place. And Ian, understandably, is like, I don't want to ever listen to that tape again. Yeah, never again. Uh, back on the island, uh, Echo is like asking Locke all these questions about the map he drew. He's like, it's not a map. And that's not a river on the map. That's a, just a wavy line. None of this is real. Stop consulting my map. And that's what they get to the site of what will become the Pearl Station, the question mark. But of course, up to this point, more notably, this is where the plane fell. This is where Boone died. Boone's mm-hmm. the reason that the plane fell. Boone. Boone made it fall. And he died. A sacrifice the island demanded. Yeah, I mean, he really does seem like, again, like that... That guy who went to college and is like, wow, all the silly crap I did in high school, like that time Boone died, you know, it it really does seem like this is a guy who, I mean, it's such an interesting journey for him because he's being forced to literally like retread the path he took that led to that moment where everyone began to hate him and he sort of hated his own journey for the island and he's come back around on it with the hatch but he's going to soon discover at least from his opinion that that was all for naught as well and so it is a weird stroll down memory lane for john Locke, complete with you know quoting himself yeah so uh that so they're gonna they're gonna set up camp uh echo says all right so this is what we're gonna do we're gonna go to sleep 
and we're going to wait for, wait for it, further instructions. Let's not wait for further instructions. <laughs> no, let's wait for it, because I don't want to have to get into it any further than we than we need to until we get there. Uh, I wonder if that episode will be as bad as I remember. Anyway, we'll get there. We're almost there. Um, all right, back at the hatch. Uh, Libby's still unconscious. The bleeding has stopped, and everyone's like, oh, that's good, right? Jack's like, no, that's, acti- that's actively bad. Uh, this is, all of this is bad. Uh, Michael says, hey, has she started talking? She's saying anything? <laughs> she did not happen to reveal that I shot her, right? Yeah, she didn't happen to uh, point me out and just sort of describe the situation that happened. Yeah, so Mike... So tell her I'm really sorry. Michael is still just trying to play it cool. No one suspects a thing. You know, you got to give props for the performance, right? He's just shot himself. He's nursing a gunshot wound that doesn't seem to be like it's getting like uh, as much attention as what's going on with Libby. Rightfully so, but he's still just like standing there with a gunshot wound. He's just killed these people. He's mostly killed Libby at this point. He might get out of here. And to his credit, he hasn't outed himself yet. So, uh, you know, just uh, tip of the cap to the performance. Is what yeah, and I, and I do love uh, the look on Harold Perrineau's face after that moment you mentioned before when Libby, like, quote-unquote, wakes up and coughs up blood because it's the biggest, like, oh, shit. Yeah. Look on his face of, wow. Oh, man. I'm in such deep doo-doo right now. Yeah, huge doo-doo. And look, we're going to have uh, a lot of opportunities to to, to fling doo-doo at Michael in the next two episodes. And bolos. Uh, and bolos filled with doo-doo with elephant tongue. Um, and I, I mean, if, for people who want us to be harsher towards Michael right now, I would say like we'll get there. Uh, but the fact that I really love Harold Perrineau, it does. It, I think that that has always helped me like be more apologetic for Michael. I just love Harold Perrineau so much. I just think he's great. Yeah, I mean, he has. He's really fun to watch. Is what I will say. Is I think what I have realized with Harold Perrineau is like he is able. I think to transcend the material that he is often given. Yes, with his performance, and that's a cool thing to check out. Where, like, I do think over the course of Lost Down the Hatch, what I've sort of been realizing from a macro perspective is at some points being able to separate the actor from the character. Like, there have certainly been episodes where we've given points to characters, even though they haven't really done anything good in the episode, but because of the performance. And I do feel like Harold Perrineau is really selling to me at least what I think is like a pretty unsavory storyline from just a timing perspective. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I, I, I appreciate, again, I, that's why I wanted more in this episode. You know, I, totally, I, I want to see totally. more of the, the vices on Michael. Like, we're going to talk about that Hurley Michael scene, and I, I, that's delicious to me. It's, again, it's like you've said before, it's sad, but it's such a fun moment to watch this character do this terrible thing, probably the worst thing he'll ever do in his life. And, like, really have to emotionally reconcile that while still being on the offensive and yeah. still trying to dodge these punches that are potentially being thrown his way. Yeah. Um, so uh, Jack needs to make Libby comfortable. Uh, he doesn't have what he needs. So he's like, but you've got all the meds for me. You beat me at poker. And he's like, we're not talking about that again. Uh, it's the heroin. I need the heroin. You've got the stash. Sawyer, to his credit, is not even going to blink at that, right? He's going to get up immediately and say, give me 20 minutes. That's impressive speed that I don't believe is possible. Well, given- <laughs> I mean, we'll, I, it apparently it's not true because yeah. we'll also talk about speaking of timing, how we go from day to, you know, when we, when we see the four venturing through the jungle, that was at night. 
uh, even though the scene in which they find out about, you know, Anna getting the gun was during the day and two for the road. And then we're about to get, to get into Sawyer and Kate going to Sawyer's tent. And that's during the day. Yeah. So he says 20 minutes. That's going to be it. And uh, then Jack's going to say, OK, Kate's going with you. And uh, Kate's going to be the one who's like, but it doesn't take two people. And Jack's going to insist. And Kate's still not going to get it. And Sawyer, who has been in Jack's shoes on something like this, I'm sure, in the past, totally gets it immediately. He says, Jacko knows my heroine is in the stash of the guns, so I can show you where it's at or let Libby suffer. That's pretty much it, Doc. And yeah. Jack says, yeah, that's pretty much it. And Sawyer, without missing a beat again, we're off. Let's go, Freckles. So... I want to. I'm gonna, you know, just to spoil it. I'm giving an MVP point this week to Jack uh, for for doing his best with Libby here, but also implementing at the exact right time. Kate's going with you. She's really of no use here right now in this moment, but she can now reclaim our guns. Uh, she's going to be able to find where you have the guns. And I know that's cold blooded, but it's what has to be done right now. And I'm going to give a point to Sawyer because Sawyer, to his credit, just rises to this moment. And all of that long, convoluted, long conning he had done a few weeks earlier uh, is undone by this, and he gives that up instantly. Uh, this this woman is suffering, this woman is in trouble, and this is true life-or-death stuff. Let's just go. See, that's the thing as well, is that, you know, say what you want to about what Kate calls the pissing contest a few episodes back between Jack and Sawyer— this is a moment where, like, there is no BS between them. And that's something that the Jack-Locke relationship has not transcended yet. This has hit that level. Well, maybe it's because, like you said, it's, it's the seriousness of the situation. Maybe it's just their unique pairing as well. Hell, maybe it's even based in Exodus when Sawyer really, like, reveals uh, something that Jack really needed to know. And that brought them closer together in a weird way. But, yeah, I do like that Sawyer and Jack are both extremely upfront there is no con going on here. There are no double plays or triple plays or anything like that. It's she wants me to come. You know, you, you, she, he wants her to come with me because he doesn't trust me. Yep, that's right. And they're like, great, let's move on from it. And maybe it's because yeah. they're working towards the same cause that they're just blatantly upfront about why they're doing the things that they're doing. So they're gonna they're gonna go to the beach. Uh, Kate wants. To, hey, so how did Anna get your gun? So I was like, I don't know. I don't well, know. Shut up. Don't There's no business that. like show business in a manner yeah, of speaking. Nothing to talk about there. Uh, the stash is in his tent. I have some questions about how that was possible. Um, you mean like, like did, did people notice him buried digging a giant hole in his yeah, tent? Yeah, when, when did that happen? Or did he just always have that hole from like his previous stash? And so now his stash hole was open. Uh, I would so imagine so. Like, I don't know how much we've, we saw inside... Sawyer's tent, but I remember when we used to go in there, it wasn't like it was like this huge stockpiled store. So I could imagine that like he always has this attitude, right? Of like if there's a valuable, you sleep on top of it, putting cash in the mattress. For but how instance. did he? How did he do it? How did he pull that off? With just him and Charlie? And when did that happen? Did Charlie put all of those guns in Sawyer's tent? How was nobody watching? Was it because while he was doing that, did, is that why he like monologues for so long <laughs> when he has the assault rifle? And like is during that whole time that he's got everybody's attention, is Charlie just like blisteringly like running back and forth well, from where Locke put the guns? Well, Josh, to where? <laughs> what if it happens during the supply drop? Like I know we're gonna see the both of them there, 
But what if they delay their arrival to it? And while everyone's running over to it, they say, now is the time. Let's, you know, move the gun location. Anyone have any good gun stash theories? Uh, we'll hear those. Maybe it's like <laughs> a thing where they're slowly smuggling guns one by one into the tent. Yeah. We'll go down the stash. Uh, so if anyone's got some stash theories for us, we'll, we'll get into it next week. Uh, poor Hurley, man. Here comes Hurley. Hey, have you guys seen Libby? Yeah, this is just one big aww episode for Hurley. What a great choice to hold back from, as it was in the shooting script for Two for the Road. I'm really glad that we didn't have that scene last week where Hurley's alone on the beach. Completely. Because you get this far into the episode, like you've almost completely forgotten about the Hurley piece. And then when Hurley shows up, it's like the same reaction that Sawyer and Kate are having. So what we're having, we're like, oh, shit. Oh yeah, that's right. And I and I do love the choice to have, you know, the next piece of dialogue be at least soundless from our perspective, right? They cut to this wide shot of Kate approaching Hurley and putting an arm around him. Because it's one of those things of like, I know that there are always mysteries of like, what did so and so whisper to the other person? But sometimes I think power is found in the fact that we don't know mm-hmm. those things. And I feel like we didn't need to know what Kate told Hurley. In that moment, because we already knew what the situation was. Totally. And so we don't need to fill in those blanks. And I think it's much more impactful to see, like, Kate's body language as she cautiously approaches Hurley and puts the arm around. Even Sawyer, like, takes a, you know, contemplative step forward. Yes, absolutely. All right. Dream time. Uh, So this this is a weird dream. Dream Yemi. Yes. Dream Yemi. Dremmy's going to show up to to Mr. Echo, and he's going to tell Echo to climb this hill, and then he's going to push Echo off the hill. And after he says, wake up, John, and it it was John's dream? Yeah. John was Mr. Echo seeing Yemi. Yeah, I guess. I mean, do you think John was like, who the hell is this guy? Yeah. Because Echo hasn't told him about Yemi yet. He will later on, but not at this point. So he just thinks there's some random guy dressed up in a priest robe in his wheelchair. Yeah, so that's that's how it's done. Uh, he's gonna, he's gonna be like, okay, so I guess I just dreamed that I was Mr. Echo and I just saw your dead brother. Mr. Echo's like, oh, I knew it. Oh, see, isn't this so great? And John's like, at this point, he's like starting to like slowly begrudgingly be like, maybe there is something, something weird yeah. going on here. Okay, you know what, this is pretty know, cool. This, this is I'm trying to cool. remember, I, I forgot if this is talked about, the, the, like, I'm calling it the white root wall, the like, the sheer yeah. rock face. Yeah. Can't remember if that was, do you think that was man-made or do you think that was like a natural Hawaiian piece of the landscape that they've used? Um, that's a good question. Because um, the amount of times they like climb on it, I, I I could go either way with it. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I, I I have no idea. Uh, I would imagine that it's real, but maybe that's just a testament. Maybe for liability's sake, they they built it. It's like we need something for people to climb. And yeah, so like, well, let's, well, let's sure get our they, money's worth yeah, out of it. They definitely at least have like the stage wall. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, so and it's interesting because Echo is probably the most joyous we will ever see him at this point like when he's like oh okay and now i know what to do like i'm going to do this it's so interesting and maybe it's because again he feels like it is yemi whether it's the island or man in black or not that it's it's someone from his personal life telling him what it is and i imagine that's also influenced by the fact like the last thing he heard before coming onto the island was you're gonna see yemi right and he's gonna like tell you what to do it brings up i would almost say like a boyishness in echo and that makes sense considering the fact that this is a bo- this is a man whose childhood was essentially robbed from him the moment he was told to shoot that guy and he had to grow up a hell of a lot. Right. 
Uh, yeah, by the way, this is absolutely the happiest we will ever see Mr. Echo, certainly from this point forward. Yeah. <laughs> you know, from this point forward, it's really all downhill. Except maybe there is this one point where he's pushing the button and Charlie's going to come to him. Uh, and he's like, Charlie, I'm pushing the button now. I've moved into the hatch. Can you go bring me my stuff? He does seem pretty happy. I think that's next week. Uh, if it's not next week, it is. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's next week. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's in Live Together Dialogue. Yeah, I think anyway. there's so, too much going on at that point. <laughs> I always love that scene, so we'll get there next week. Um, all right, so Mr. Eccles like, all right, cool. So I'm going to climb the thing. And Locke's like, hey, don't do that. Last time someone did that, it went really poorly. The guy got crushed. And I guess that's technically what is going to happen to Echo. Do you think Echo dying ultimately is because he climbed the vines? Yeah, is this like an unlucky wall of like any, any whoever touches it ends up getting yeah, killed eventually? It, even Locke is eventually going to climb the wall uh, during like a, a fit of time traveling. Okay, so we have the feelings wall and now we have the cursed wall, yeah, the, the death cur- wall. The death wall, the, the, the vine wall is not a wall to be trifled with. Uh, so Echo's going to start climbing it. We're going to get another flashback. And this is the flashback that brings Richard Malkin, the psychic, back into the mix because he is the father of the young girl who died and came back to life. Um, let's, let's just hear him. Let's hear what he's got to say. Uh, get back in the house, Joyce. Get her inside. Richard, please. Inside. Now. I know why you're here, friend. But you can save yourself the trouble. What happened here was not a miracle. Doctor, that treated your daughter. Seems to feel different. I treated her. You mean tried to cut her open? He's just trying to cover up his own negligence. He tell you the whole story? How she supposedly drowned? She fell into a mountain river. Her body shut down. She went into hypothermia, which made her appear dead. And why is your wife so convinced otherwise? Because she's a zealot. All of this. Everything she's doing is despite me. Why would she spite you? Because she knows I'm a fraud. Because I make my living as a psychic. You see, that's what I do. I gather intelligence on people and I exploit it. Every day, I meet people looking for a miracle, desperate to find one. But there are none to be had. Not in this world, anyway. I will report back to my Monsignor that there was no miracle here. Your daughter is alive. This is all that matters. Yo, so Richard Malkin, you're a fraud, bro. Richard Malkin sucks. (laughs) Like, say what you want about being a fraud or not, but, like, don't treat your family like that. He's such an ass coming out and be like, get back in the house. What what an a-hole. Yeah, what? and I wonder, part of me feels like, maybe this is my grand unifying theory of the island, uh, Australia is a mini island. Uh, do you think that, like, maybe, you know, uh, Isaac tipped him off about this, and so to, like, keep this under wraps, he is, like, flagrantly disputing the idea that it's a miracle. And in that case, I feel like the lady doth protest too much. Okay, like, so so we gotta talk this through. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alright, so let's let's try this one on. Richard Malkin is a fraud. Mm-hmm. Richard Malkin is not a psychic. Richard right. Malkin has no psychic ability. Because timeline-wise, Richard Malkin saying all of this to Mr. Echo is right before Oceanic 815. 
right? Yeah. So like, he, yeah, he's, he's already deep in the queer shit at this point. It, to the point where I believe there is a deleted scene in this episode where Malkin says, like, he says, "I'm such a fraud that I told this pregnant woman that there was a fam that she had to get on this plane because there was a family waiting for her." In Los okay, Angeles. cool. So you ready? I'm gonna. I'm my my hair is as big as it possibly can get. Oh, I'm excited. My arms are spread really wide, and I'm squinting as I say, "Time travel." Okay, so like, good. I was it, afraid you were gonna say aliens for a second. No, no I'll go time travel. Uh, the aliens built the runway, uh, or it's for the aliens anyway. Uh, time travel, easy, right? Agent of Jacob type stuff. Uh, Agent of Jacob, some sort of time traveler, goes to Richard Malkin. Says, "Hey, so at some point in the next week." A pregnant woman is going to come and see you, and you are going to tell her to get on Oceanic 815. You're going to tell her all this stuff, whatever it is, whatever that whole journey was. I, obviously, the details are a little thin for me at this point. Um, he's like, I don't know what you're talking about, but it's like one of his typical like intelligence gathering people. Right. How would that be any different from the intelligence gathering game he's got before? Uh, and then he's going to see Claire, and she's going to come in, and like it's going to take him a second to realize, and then he's going to be like, oh, God, that's right. This is the one. But then he's, like, really scared of the person for whatever reason who gave him the intelligence. Like, I think that that could all play within uh, the realm of reality. Like, I think this question of how is Richard Malkin both a fraud, but also he was correct as a psychic with Claire. How did these two things sit alongside each other, especially when Richard Malkin in this moment with Mr. Echo is so close? It's in the thick of all the Claire stuff. I think that the best explanation for me is that Malkin is legitimately a fraud, does not have the ability, but he was tipped off. Like, Claire's got to go to this place. You got to tell Claire to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's the yeah. theory. That's the theory. I'm, no, I mean, I, I agree with that. I also wonder, maybe the person who tipped him off, like, maybe his direct superior is Isaac. Because let's remember that Isaac was the one who told Rose, like, very mysteriously a couple episodes ago, of, like, this is not the place for you. Right. You know, like, I'm not the one to help you here. I wonder if, you know, he's the one who handles all this and Malkin is sort of like one of his subsidiaries and that he's the one to be able to disseminate information. Because it makes sense. If he's right on top of this magnetic stuff, maybe that means that he's the guardian in a manner of speaking. And so I wonder from that perspective, could this have been set up to get Echo on the plane? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's possible, right? That would track. I think that that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's, it's this idea of like, Malkin maybe keeping him in a certain place because otherwise the idea would be that if it was indeed a miracle, Echo would have to stay, yeah. right? Echo would have to probably do a lot of paperwork or investigate this further. In Malkin denying that it's a miracle, it allows Echo, who at this point like is not religious at all, is like, okay, sure, that's fine. I'm going to get on the plane now. Make sure he gets on Oceanic 815 and makes his way to the island. Yeah. Yeah, so I think something like that works for me. Um... Works better for me than, like, he had one psychic blip. I think him having this moment where he's confessing I'm a fraud feels to me like, then you're a fraud. I think you're a fraud. Yeah, I I, don't, I do not see any reason why we should believe he's a psychic yeah. at this point. And I think it's much more interesting for him to be a fraud if we're going along with this idea. And that's why I think Echo sees so eye-to-eye with Richard Malkin in this moment where he just takes a breath. He's like, listen, I get it. I, because he's someone who is also like yeah. masquerading as something he's not, right? Yeah. He's someone who is also espousing these things that he does not necessarily believe in. So he's like, I got you, bro. I feel you. I'm going to head out now, but like, thanks for, for giving me the true tea on this. <laughs> right, right, right. All right, so Echo's climbing, he's climbing, he's climbing, he looks down. Ah, it's the question mark! It's, they planted a question mark 
in the ground. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, they salted the earth, and we get this moment where Echo, who is it in The Last Jedi, who, like, bends down on the salt planet and just licks the dirt and is like, oh, this is salt. Oh, I forget, I forget. I but, like, both of them just have such, uh, I mean, they take a gamble, and I guess the dice roll pays off, but otherwise, dude, you're just eating dirt. <laughs> I mean, what else do they got to eat right now? There's not a I lot. I suppose, but I, I always like this reveal as well, because it's also a great sort of representation of the fact of, like, when you see the, the forest for the trees... In a certain perspective, sometimes it does take away from the bigger picture, and it's like, hey, they were on top of the question mark the entire time that they were on top of this hatch, but because they were so concerned with the micro of it all, they were not able to look from above and see what the larger picture mm-hmm. was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so now, they, now they've got it, and now Locke is suddenly really pumped up. Ooh, another hatch! Cool! There's another hatch! There's a hatch under the plane! And I think for him, he's like, Boone and I were right here, so maybe he was a sacrifice the island demanded. He was supposed to get me to the second hatch! Oh, Johnny boy. Oh, you're, boy. You're in for a real, real disappointment moment. Yeah, the hatch grass is greener and salted on the other side with that one. <laughs> Add another hatch back at the swan uh we uh see jack is trying to to soothe libby with the heroin um and now hurley is added to the mix and we have this scene between hurley and michael it's a heartbreaker let's listen we were gonna have our first date a date yeah a picnic on the beach I'm glad you're okay, man. It's it's three sentences on Hurley's side. We were going to have our first date. A picnic on the beach. I'm glad you're okay, man. Ah! And with three sentences, he kills you. Uh, Just as Michael killed Libby. Yeah, with three sentences and then three minutes. And I mean, this also... I wouldn't say pairs nicely, but like compare this to when Hurley finds out and lives together, die alone, that Michael was the one who killed Libby, and it just makes it hurt that much more. And that's another reason why like Michael's able to get away with this, right? Is because nobody suspects him. Yes, he yeah. does crazy things sometimes, but like they've had so much time to get to know him that they generally think he's a good guy that Hurley like confides to him here of like well, no matter what, I'm glad that you're okay, and it just hurts. No one has any reason to think that he yeah. killed these people. Yeah, which will make Saeed so much better in the next episode where he's like, oh, I'm pretty sure it's Michael. Yeah, I feel like we should just like straight up give Saeed 500 points for figuring it out. Uh, it's like a it's a full bingo. Uh, this is just Sa- Saeed at the top of his game. Um, but it's just brutal. It's brutal. Yeah, it's like, so brutal you, still, you as the viewer, you still have so many questions about why did Michael do any of this? What's going on? Like, you still just don't know. But, like, again, like, a testament to Harold Perrineau that, like, I think, like, he still wears, like, the pain of the moment of, like, I did this to poor Hurley. I didn't just, like, shoot these innocent people. Like, I've ruined this poor guy's life, too. And everybody loves Hugo. Uh, so the the whole thing is just it's mega depressing, but a really great performance from Jorge Garcia. Um, yeah, and, and what I love about it, too, is that Michael's pain can also be mistaken for, like, you went through a lot of trauma. I understand why you're feeling this way. When it's like, no, he caused the trauma. That's why he's feeling this he way. He killed him. He, you killed him. Uh, back at the Pearl, we go into the Pearl, and th- this is we, we get like a little sur- uh, survey of the scene. Uh, that there is literally surveillance uh, through mm-hmm. here. There are all these TVs. Jack yeah. pops up on the screen, all these different angles on the hatch. 
So, yeah, we'll sort of set the scene here because there's so there's these big comfy chairs, like you said, that sort of like have tray tables in them. I believe the stubbed out cigarette is meant to mean allude to the fact that like people were here recently. And I don't know. Hopefully it's not Ben considering his his cancerous history. But if it was like a Tom or a Juliet who was previously there, but it means that like someone was there recently. The camera, I don't know if you noticed, but it actually looks like a bit of like the roof fell away to reveal the camera. I think that makes sense, considering we're going to find out in a couple of episodes that the Pearl is not the one doing the psychological experiment. The Pearl is the psychological experiment. And so I think it would make sense that if they were being spied on, then that would be sort of hidden, right? So I think think that all tracks. But yeah, we talked about the Marble Notebooks. We talked about the Brady Bunch, you know, style of TVs. Yeah, the Brady Bunch TVs are there. There's all the marble notebooks. There's a computer that says print log. Locke chooses to print the log. That will be important. It will yeah, be thank good God. that he we'll does talk about that. This later, but thank God Echo takes it with him, or else Desmond would be like, uh, give me the logs. He's like, uh, uh, I'm sorry. I left yeah. them behind. Yeah, well, I guess we'll never know who crashed your plane. Yeah, very good. Very good that he does. And then there's a film. There's another film. There's another orientation movie. Yeah, this one's on tape. At least this one's not on, like, you know, sketchy film reel. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah, this was made later. Which we've got questions about, right? Because uh, Mm -hmm. Pierre Chang is going by a new name. He's not Marvin Candle this time. He's Mark Wickman. He's got both arms. This is filmed in 1980, or at least it's released in 1980. Right. Continuity error. What are you going to do? Can we also do, uh, can we start a power ranking for the Pierre Chang nicknames or pseudonyms? All right. So Pierre Chang, does that count? Because I, it's his actual name. <laughs> yeah, I think I think so. I think we should include his actual name there. So we have right now we have Pierre Chang, Marvin Candle, and Mark Wickman. It's it's it, it's pretty easy for me. It's uh, Marvin Candle number one, Pierre Agreed. Chang number two, Mark Wickman number three. Yeah, I don't know about I don't know what it is about Mark Wickman. Maybe it's like the cuss sounds one right after the other, but it does not flow as well. Marvin Candle, just iconic name, and it does sound like a fun little like fairy tale character. Mark Wickman sounds like the name of like a B list. Mark Wickman movie star. sounds like a bullshit colleague that you have. Like I yeah. hate Mark Wickman. Yeah, exactly. Like we all have those Mark Wickmans in our lives, yes. right? The guy who says like, "I'll follow up. I'll send that thing to you immediately," and never does. Uh, the one who says he's, they're totally going to your party and then texts you on the morning of, being like, "I'm sorry, I can't make it. Something came up, but send my send my best." Those oh, are God. the Mark Wickmans. Oh, God, I'm Mark Wickman. You're not Mark Wickman. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm Mark Wickman. No, no, I think it's me. I think it's me. I'm Mark Wickman. <laughs> oh, God. All right, let's watch the por- uh, the Pearl Orientation film so we can uh, get out of this one really quickly. I'm Dr. Mark Wickman, and this is the orientation film for Station 5 of the Dharma Initiative. Station 5, or the Pearl, is a monitoring station where the activities of participants in Dharma Initiative projects can be observed and recorded, not only for posterity, but for the ongoing refinement of the initiative as a whole. As Karen DeGroote herself has written, careful observation is the only key to true and complete awareness. Your tour of duty in the Pearl will last three weeks, and during this time, you and your partner will observe a psychological experiment in progress. Your duty is to observe team members in another station on the island. These team members are not aware that they are under surveillance, 
or that they are the subjects of an experiment. Working in eight-hour shifts, you and your partner will record everything you observe in the notebooks we provided. What is the nature of the experiment, you might ask? What do these subjects believe they are accomplishing as they struggle to fulfill their tasks? You, as the observer, don't need to know. All you need to know is the subjects believe their job is of the utmost importance. Remember, everything that occurs, no matter how minute or seemingly unimportant, must be recorded. Each time a notebook is filled with the fruits of your diligent observation, move it up there one of the containers provided. Then, simply place the container in the pneumatic tube, and presto. It will be transported directly to us. At the end of your eight-hour shift, proceed to the Pala Ferry, which will take you back to the Earth. On behalf of the DeGroote, Alvaro Hanso, and all of us here at the Dharma Initiative, thank you. Namaste, and good luck. Would you like to watch that again? John Locke's so mad. He's so mad. He is steaming right now. More than that unlit cigarette that is on the tray next to him. So yeah, I mean, this is shattering for so many reasons. First, it's the second orientation film. And I remember the big mystery of like, why does this guy go by a different name? Wait, wasn't his name Marvel Marvin Candle? Yeah. Why is he going by Mark Wickman, the name of one of the worst people ever? What's going on here? <laughs> Obviously, the, you know, the revelation of the Pearl is is a big deal in so many ways. It becomes an even bigger deal when we find out that it's it's one big hoax. Uh, there's, but of course, in true drama fashion, there is of course still some mystery. You still got to keep him hanging on a bit. There's do the, we do we know that it's a hoax for sure? I think that the symbol of the pneumatic tubes going into the garbage dump paired with the fact that the camera there's a camera focus on the people made it made it seem like that was a psychological experiment not these people taking long. Yeah, I wonder if the if the show ever like fully tells us whether or not it's it it itself is the experiment cuz like I could imagine the scenario where like Dharma used to like have people stationed to collect the notebooks uh but they're dead. <laughs> Like supremely well, dead. Well, at this let's point. also remember, and I think maybe this is another reason why the chronology is interesting. Of this is, I believe the pearl existed before the swan. Like I remember, there's there's a part I think in season five when Saeed is like talking about the swan. Like I think uh, Radzinski is like building the geodesic dome of, as a right. model, and Saeed mentions the pearl. So I think the pearl pre-exists. Right. Swan. So so that would make sense too because something that you see in the when you're watching the orientation video for the pearl, you never see the swan. You see like somebody at a computer, but I I'm pretty sure that's not the swan station. Um because like the background of like the two people who are by the computer, it looks different. Um we know that through the pearl you're going to be able to like peep on the flame, you know where mm-hmm. where Patchy McPatcherson's oh, yeah. at. Um so I think it's possible that the pearl is exactly as advertised. I think it's I think it's totally possible that the pearl is exactly as advertised, well, and it's yeah. just that like there's no one there to collect this shit anymore because they got they got uh, chemically warfared to extinction. 
Well, I think the thing is, though, like, the video seems to imply that the pneumatic tubes will send the things to, like, all over to Hydra Island, right? Like, they talk, the part that gets cut out is, like, talking about the Palafari. I think they cut out it being an entirely different island to, again, let that mystery happen with the barracks. Otherwise, like, I can imagine, I guess a happy medium here is that when it initially was built, I think it existed as intended. I think it was to, like, keep an eye on it. But then at a certain extent, I do wonder if it's like, okay, now we can use this as an opportunity to sort of perform our own little experiments in a manner of speaking. Because remember, the DeGroots were there to study, 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 study. We even quoted DeGroot. Careful observation is the only key to true and complete awareness. And so I could imagine to a certain perspective, like them thinking, okay, well, we'll have them take tabs on this, but also at the same time, we're really studying them. Like we, we already know what's going on, but this is a way to have them keep eyes on what's going on too. All right. So John Locke does not need to watch that again. He has seen enough. Uh, and uh, we've been light on sounds up to this point, but we're, we're about to close out the episode basically with all sounds all the time. Uh, John Locke is going to make his current feelings really well known as he and Echo are going to do their own post-game podcast on what they just watched. What are you doing? I'm taking this back with us. Why? Because they may be important. Important? I'm, so, I'm sorry, w- weren't you just watching the same thing I was? Yes, Jim. And I believe the work you have been doing is more important now than ever. What work? Pushing the button. work that's a that's a a joke rats in a maze with no cheese it is work john we are being tested tested the reason to do it push the button is not because we are told to do so in a film well then what is the reason mr echo We do it because we believe we are meant to. Isn't that the reason you pushed it, John? I was never meant to do anything. Every single second of my pathetic little life is as useless as that button. Do you think it's important? Do you think it's necessary? It's nothing. It's nothing. It's meaningless. And who are you to tell me that it's not? Uh, I love John Locke's, uh, like, rats in a maze with no cheese. Ugh. And it's, it's so a great line. He's going to say he's going to say something. Uh, I think it's in the finale to Echo. Where he's like, we're puppets. Puppets on strings. Uh, I just, I just. Yes, he has so many. Yes, so many similes saved up. Yeah, yeah. We're being led to the slaughter like sheep. Yeah. I, I also love this idea of like. I mean, you know, I don't know. We always talk about this with season two. How much they were really looking to the end game, but I feel like the whole experiment idea is also such a great foreshadowing for what the final mythos of Lost is. That's that's revealed in seasons five and six, right? This like. 
I wouldn't say that Jacob is necessarily using them for experiments, but he is bringing people to this island as a test for who is to become his successor. And there is a certain amount of surveillance from his perspective as well, right? And depending on your thoughts, it might be manifested in the, the form of dreams in this episode. So it's this cool idea where, like, Locke is raging at the storm right now, but the storm is, like, the, the reason why he's there in the first place. And so this surveillance almost has its more outer shelling of what it actually means on the whole scope of the island itself. Right. So Locke's very angry, and he's very angry for, you know, the reasons he's listing, but I think all the reasons we've listed along the way here. Uh, he's feeling very small these days. Uh, you know, he feels like his life is very pathetic and little, and that, like, I think he's been responsible for a lot of damage. I think he's reckoning with that. Uh, I think he's probably, like, really embarrassed. Uh, just, like, a lot going on with John Locke. Yeah, and, and this is, I think, I might say this is the most authentic John Locke has ever been to somebody else. Like, uh, I, might, yeah. I, might, I might nail that stake in the ground right now. Because, again, there have been moments, like, when he talked to Boone in Deus Ex Machina, but part of me feels like that was, again, to, like, have Boone help him. This had no purpose. This is John Locke just, just screaming into the void right now of, I thought I had a reason for being here, but it turns out that I was a pencil pusher in real life, I'm a pencil pusher here on the island, I, my life doesn't have any meaning, and it's extremely frustrating. It's meaningless, and who are you to tell me that it's not? Uh, and I, I think that Echo's response, and we'll get to Echo's actual response after the flashback here, but Echo's response in this conversation is super interesting, too. Like, his patience and resolve, as opposed to Locke's rampant frustration at the situation, and specifically the quote, we do it because we believe we are meant to. It's so interesting, this idea of, like, what you believe in might not be actual factual, but the idea of believing in it is the important thing. As yeah. long as it's your beliefs are not like causing harm to others, the fact that you have a conviction is the important part of belief itself. I think is is a facet that we haven't necessarily focused on, especially in the case of John Locke, who has always been fixated on what he needs to believe in. That to focus on the verb instead of the noun, I think is a, a great little touch as to this facet, this theme of belief that we're constantly going to be looking at. So we get a moment that I, I think does mirror this to some degree uh, at the airport. Uh, Echo's leaving. He's about to, to, to get he out did not, of the He game. did not see Cindy, the flight attendant. No. I don't know if this is before <laughs> and after, or after the events of Jack yelling at her. No. Uh, well, he doesn't yell at Cindy. What's the name of the person he yells at? Uh, oh, no, it's... um. Chrissy, 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 Christy, yeah. Uh, you know, I just get her on, get him on the plane. Uh, but no, uh, he's going to be the one who's causing a scene. Uh, Charlotte, Charlotte Malkin's going to show up uh, and say, uh, "Hey, uh, I have a message for you. It's uh, your brother Yemi." And like the old Mister Echo comes out here, he's like, "Hey, do not talk about my brother unless you've got something very serious to say." Uh, and he starts to get like pretty upset with like, "Who are you? Who are you?" And she's talking about how I saw him when I was between places. Yeah, and it was Yemi Josh in the Upside Down with yeah, Charlie Malkin? It's possible. That's what it sounds like. Uh, I saw him in between places. He said you'd come and see me, and that even though you're pretending, you are a good man. Um, Libby's going to be like, is everything okay? So it's like, hey, one last shot of Libby being alive before we see her die in a couple scenes. Um, what is this then? So is this is this smoke monster stuff? Is this island stuff? How does Charlotte Malkin see all of this? Tell me everything. 
I, I would see a much like, I mean, listen, we're going to be getting very soon into characters that can commune with the dead. I would not be surprised if, again, if Australia is a mini island, if Charlotte Malkin did indeed come back from the dead and had this ability. So I, I think un- due to what we're going to see, this is kind of par for the course. I, I could take this as 100% legit, especially considering the feelings that Yemi did have for Echo. Otherwise, like, she's just as good as her dad if she's really pulling this grift on him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> we just don't know. I don't know. Uh, like, I can imagine... Uh, look, is there a possibility that, like, Richard Malkin, like, to convince him about Claire, that, like, an agent of Jacob knocks him out, takes him and uh, his the whole Malkin family to the island, and, like, this is a place, you're going to send Claire here. And he's like, oh, wow, this place is great. And then they send him back. And when she's having a dream on the island one night, the island shows up to her in the form of Yemi. And so that's what she means when she says, like, when I was between places, literally when I was like between like we were moving, we were in the middle of moving and some of my dad's colleagues, some of his Intel providers showed up and said, hey, take this quick vacation. And so during uh, when we were between places, when yeah, we, we, were, were between- we were crashing on a friend's couch <laughs> on the island, uh, so I don't know, I whatever, you know. I don't know. I, I, I guess I, ultimately I, this is not the stuff that I care that much about on Lost. I, I wonder if that's frustrating for people. I, I, I don't I guess know. I'm I just, just getting more and more on this page that, uh, Josh, I really do think Australia might be the beta <laughs> version of the island. Yeah. It's a bit, it's a big island. It's a continent. Yeah. What is, like, what is a continent if not just a big island, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that's how it works. Uh, back in, uh, on the island, on the little island, the main island, um, Echo is going to respond to John Locke with the following rebuttal. This cross was worn by my brother Yemi. Yemi was a great man, a priest, a man of God. And because I betrayed him, he was shot and died. He was placed on a plane which took off from an airstrip in Nigeria, half a world from here. Then the plane that I was on crashed on this island. And somehow, here, I found my brother again. I found him in the same plane that took off from Nigeria, in the same plane that lies above us now, that has concealed this place. And I took this cross from around Yemi's neck and put it back on mine. Just as it was on the day I first took another man's life. So let me ask you, how can you say this is meaningless? I believe the work being done in the hatch is more important than anything. If you will not continue to push the button, John, I will. I love it. I love that very much. Uh, I think it speaks to the heart of Lost, Mike. I think it speaks right to the sweet spot of this show of who are you to tell me that my experience is invalid? Exactly. Who are you to tell me that everything that I've been through and all the signs that I've seen are wrong? 
and I think for somebody to be shouting that at John Locke is especially powerful. Uh, so I love that. I love the scene. Uh, obviously, huge AAA fan. Uh, and I think this is a AAA scene. Exactly. And I think that it also strikes on another theme as well of like the passing of positions onto other people, whether it's actual titles like protector of the island or whether it's roles like pushing the button or whether it's more thematic ideas of the man of science and man of faith. We've talked so much about Jack's journey there. The like passing from one to another has always been a recurring theme in Lost and it happens here. As well, and you know, it's interesting that that Echo is not going to be long for this world. It's, it begs the question once more: of had AAA wanted to stay on, what would that have meant? Would they have continued down this path where Locke becomes the perennial doubter, and Echo really does become the devotee to the island, and he really becomes like the Jacob guy? It would be interesting to see because that's sort of who he's personifying at this moment, right? He sort of has his own Lockean speech that, much like Locke gave to Boone, of. I was paralyzed and the island healed my legs. Echo said, I was told I would find my brother, and now I, we happen to crash on the same island. Do not mistake coincidence for fate. Yep. This is fate. And I, I, I love that mini arc going on right here. Uh, and, you know, it's also a great callback as well to the 23rd Psalm, where he talks about the cross uh, coming from the first day that he killed someone. I also believe, is Locke the second person to know about Yemi on the island besides Charlie? Yeah, I believe that's right. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's an elite club that he sort of is letting you on a secret, much like Locke did with his paralysis. Yeah, uh, the, the stick that Mr. Echo wields is also an elite club. Uh, <laughs> no, great, it's, it's just great stuff. It's great stuff. I really, I really love it. The scene actually continues, uh, and I think that we're going to pick that up. Uh, the, the music guides us directly into, sadly, uh, the death of poor Libby, uh, which we will listen into right now. Hmm. Can I talk to her? Sure. I'm sorry I forgot the blankets. I'm sorry I forgot the blankets.
She's gone. No. Well, it's interesting. Hurley's like, uh, can I talk with her? It's like, well, you'll be able to as well after she's dead, technically speaking. Yeah. Um, do you think that her final words are Michael? Because um, in the future where she comes from, Hurley and Libby are like suddenly really good friends with Ghost Michael. And it's like, Ghost, Ghost Michael, you never told me that you kill me. <laughs> I think it's because she saw a potted plant in the corner of the room. <laughs> it looks like Michael. No, no, that's not Michael. But yeah, this is also, I mean, I would say this is like uh, a grade school version of Paolo Lies, right? The uh, From Expose of someone ironically and tragically misinterpreting someone's final well, words. I, I don't know that I, 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 I see the, the parallel, but I wouldn't call it the grade school version of that. I think the Paolo Lies is, is the funny version. You know, ultimately, like, dark comedy, but, like, mm-hmm. that's that's funny. This is very tragic. This is her trying to, like, tell them what happened, and they're, and they're missing it. And, like, the ramifications of what Michael has done are, are far more severe, to the story at least, uh, than, than the pal lies of it all, which is just, that whole episode is just the greatest mea culpa in television history, as far as I'm concerned. That's true. I guess I should say not. Maybe it's like the the dramatic mask to the comedic mask. I yes. can say the duality of drama. Yes. But um, it's so. I mean, it's so killer, quite literally, right? Because like she's trying to 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 out Michael, and Jack's like, "Oh no, don't oh, worry. Oh, he's good. Ma- he's fine. Michael's fine. He's such a great guy. Don't worry <laughs> about it." And like, I mean, Cynthia Watros does a great job with just the horror on her face as she dies, and I wonder if part of it is obviously what's going through her physically, but you have to imagine it's a bit of emotion manifesting as well, right? That, like, she's trying to say something, she's trying to to get her accuser, and it gets misinterpreted, and she dies knowing that. It's it's a terrifying moment, and Jorge Garcia absolutely sells this as well. Like, this is the most despondent we will see Hurley until season six, when Jin, Sun, and Sai die, and Hurley's like weeping on the beach. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, like he is, yeah, like he is just like besides himself. And oh God, just my heart shatters when he's like, I, you know, I, I, I should have gone and gotten the blankets. Like he, he puts so much blame on himself. You can imagine this is also bringing up all these ideas of him being a jinx and him being bad luck. That like everything around him that he touches dies. Like it's a terrible moment for Hurley. But another great way for Jorge Garcia to flex those muscles and show he's not just f- good, fun time Hurley. Yeah. No, and so a, I do appreciate that from his performance perspective. It just sucks for the It sucks. Player. It sucks so hard. It sucks so bad. It sucks so bad. Uh, and it would have been nice to see more of, of Hurley and Libby moving forward. But, um, you know, we'll get tiny bits of it in the Flash Sideways and all of that and in our head canon where Libby hails from the future. But that's, that's basically it. Uh, and, you know, Hurley's going to have a big show of emotion after Charlie's death and all of that. But uh, I think that any time that Hurley is really upset, it's hard not to feel very upset as well. Uh, that yep. that is that is like the he's, power. He's, he's of the Hurley. heart of the show. Exactly. So if his heart's broken, we're we're pretty effed up as well. Uh, so we're pretty messed up at this moment in time when Libby is dead and um, and Kate's crying and Sawyer's holding her and the the button in the background is begging to be pushed as the 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 clock is ticking away, Mike, and the camera is slowly zooming in on one. Michael Dawson, the promise of more information to come in the following <laughs> Further week's episode, instructions. three minutes, and this ending here at the end of question mark um, is one of the top 20 endings in lost history, according 
to a survivor simulation that <laughs> Down the Hatch ran. Of course, as a weeks ago. You trust you trust the words of Marvin Candle, you trust the words of mm-hmm. Brant Steele as well, which could uh-huh. probably be another uh, Pierre yeah. Chang pseudonym as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> if I'll, he showed up as Brant Steele, that's amazing. Welcome, I'm Brant Steele. This yeah. is the video for the Hydra Station. It's I, great. Yeah, I, I'm, I, but outside of that, it's a really interesting montage too, right? And it's just, uh, you know, for the second time in a row, it. I mean, I guess there is some music brought in, but it's more so the soundtrack is the 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 sound effects the beeping of the timer which really shows that like time is ticking down for these people we see you know echo and Locke hobbling their way back one with a renewed sense of purpose one with the exact opposite hurley's crying over dead libby uh we see at a point over the cracked virgin mary statue like kate is sobbing and sawyer is comforting her it actually feels like very much like out of a renaissance painting maybe i was just informed by the the virgin mary of it all and Mike Michael's just chilling in the armory where a short time ago he freed Henry Gale and shot himself in the arm. Are we assuming that he's staring at the computer? Because it cuts to the computer. And if so, is that like a symbol of his conversation with Walt that we'll see next episode? No, I think he's staring at us. And uh, it was in the shooting script, but they didn't include it in the episode, that it was going to end with a freeze frame. And it was going to be Harold Perrineau's voiceover being like, all right, so I bet you're wondering how we got here. Yeah, there's a record scratch. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep, that's me. <laughs> yep, that's me. Bet you're wondering how I got in this mess. <laughs> Give me three minutes and I'll explain everything. Uh, so we'll find out. We'll find out next week. And I'm, I am really excited to get into that episode. Um, before we get out of this one, let's let's uh, let's uh, get into the others. We've already gotten into the others over the course of this discourse. Um, this is one. Uh, so apparently, according to Lostpedia, during the episode, there was a brief commercial for the fictional Hanzo Foundation. Uh, mm-hmm. It was airing amid the normal advertisements in which the web address subliminal.com was revealed, and that was part of the Lost experience. So the website and the ad were both part of an advertising campaign, apparently by Sprite? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, obviously shows have sponsors. Uh, not We see this more so from a reality TV perspective, right? But I'm not sponsor shaming. We, we no, covered that here exactly, on this Exactly, but I just find it so interesting that A, it's Sprite, and B, that they tied it in in this way. So it's it actually is like a – it's a building. So the first time they, they debut it – is, you know, when the episode premieres, and apparently, like, the first page on subliminal.com, spelled S-U-B-L-Y-M-O-N-A-L, is, like, uh, six windows, six fuzzy TV screens, I guess, in honor of this episode, and you had to, like, click one four times, one eight times, one fifteen times, one sixteen times, etc., etc., and then everything, once that ends up happening, like, you end up going to the Hanso Foundation website, uh, yeah. So, I mean, we haven't talked too much about, like, the... We'll get into, I think, the ARG and the Lost experience of it all. But And this was covered, I think, on when Sci-Fi Wire did their deep dive into just the experience of the Lost television show uh, back uh, last fall. But this was a show that really, for the first time, included almost, like, uh, supplementary materials. And these fake websites and everything, even though the Hanso Foundation did not bear much fruit in loss proper it was a huge thing to the point where they were putting in fake commercials and that you know <laughs> yeah. i feel like has really transcended uh, i remember like mr robot for instance one of the episodes where i guessed it here on post show recaps when they were showing commercials for e-corp 
during what was supposed to be a commercial break for the show. So, again, just shows how Lost was groundbreaking in so many ways. Yeah. So uh, we're going to get into some Lost experience stuff, I think, in between seasons. Uh, I think that there are some plans in the works for that for a bonus podcast. So, uh, you know, stay tuned. We've got we've got a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff coming up. Um, let's talk about Locke's dream shaming. Uh, <laughs> Eric Divestein writes in, Why was it so hard for John to believe that their dreams were meaningful? He made Boone climb that same cliff based on a dream, so it seems awfully inconsistent that he doesn't want Echo to do the same. Might chalk it up to regret over what happened to Boone, except that Locke seemed to have no regrets over that. But he does in this episode, doesn't he? Don't you, or are you not on board with that? Uh, I don't know. I, I I feel like we sort of established this before that John Locke is a hypocrite. So like, I think Eric, what Eric's saying is is accurate. But I think that's because he's a hypocrite. Yeah. That he's like I, or that he's that this happened to me, and this ended up being such a monumentally big mistake that ended up with this kid getting killed. Let's not do the same thing. I know it's a dead end. And so you see the rise and fall of this guy, right? When they find the pearl, he's like, I want to be the one to open it up. Like, oh my God, my spirit, it's back up to 10. And then as soon as he watches that pearl video, it plummets back down to one of, wait a minute, this thing that I thought the island told me to do was just like a Big Brother live feed for these two people that were, that were just watching me the entire time. I, there's no purpose to my life anymore. Um, Benji Holder writes in, Wait, they're still looking for the stash of guns the next morning? I thought Sawyer said it would take 20 minutes. Uh, so do you think that if Sawyer uh, didn't have Kate come along for the ride, he was going to run faster? <laughs> Did you think? Well, but Kate is the fastest runner canonically, right? We've determined this. How she's able to just sprint back and forth. You think that if anything, Sawyer would be the one who slowed them down. So maybe uh, I don't know. It's just an overestimation. Twenty minutes did seem like uh, that's way too quick. I, yeah, I, I, I would buy that you would get to the to the beach in twenty minutes. I'm just still confused by because again, it's it seems like this takes place over the course of like a day or so, right? Because like the beginning happens at night. And then Locke and, and Echo make camp, and apparently over the course of that time, they they finally get to the tent the next morning. So, I don't know, maybe they thought, like, let's wait until light to do that. But you'd think it's a pretty pressing matter to get that heroin ASAP. You would think so. You would think so. Uh, Dallin Servo says, what's the more boring Dharma job? Observing the button pushers or being the button pusher? pusher? Uh, so would you rather be stationed at the Pearl or the Swan? Uh, well, I said, the, the, yeah, I said so, the Pearl. I said we, the Pearl. I agree, but I think the one caveat is that at least the Swan has more entertainment to it. You know, like, if we had the Pearl with the record player and the books and the exercise bike, I feel like that's the perfect combination. Though I guess at that point, that would also distract you from what's supposed to be your job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the other piece, though, of why I would prefer the Pearl assignment is it sounds like it's just an eight-hour workday and you get to leave. That's true. You it is eight hours. barracks. Yeah, they said, I think, what, like uh, three weeks, I think, is, is when Mark Wickman said that they would be there for or something like That's that. That's nothing. It's nothing compared to the, to the Swan gig where you're just there forever. Yeah, I forget what I forget. Did the Swan give like an estimated time that they would be there? I can't remember. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know. I think, uh, I don't remember there being anything about, uh, the time for the shifts other than just like you're in shifts. Mm. Well, not to mention, oh, the other thing I will say, uh, about, you know, maybe this idea that the Pearl was turned into an experiment at least is like the weird double blindness of Wickman telling like, 
what are you why are you observing you don't need to know that like that feels yeah. very double blind experiment to me right where like the experimenter and the experimentee do not know what the larger picture is yeah yeah no that's good very good uh some some uh some thoughts on two for the road from last week we have some lingering things um some questions about uh anna's decision to hand the gun over to michael jim fells writes in i think anna hand- handing the gun uh, uh was a form of personal growth we've rarely seen her lose sight of her weapon and now at last she's decided to let someone in who's close and again she ends up getting shot which is why it's so unfair uh, and then Craig Falkenham writes in, the explanation that Anna also gets an LVP point because she gave the gun to Michael doesn't work because he's someone that everyone trusts. So why shouldn't she give him the gun? If she chose not to, Michael would still have killed her because it's all part of his plan to save Walt. I have some issues with that. I have some issues with that. I think, first of all, uh, the, the the reason that I'm saying Anna gets the LVP point for giving Michael the gun is because she's choosing like to still kill Henry Gale. Like uh, mm. I'm still like I'm still like Henry Gale still needs to be executed right now. Uh, and I think that that's a little bit regressive. I think that that's regressive from the moment for being like I'm too tired of this anymore. I don't want anything involved in this anymore. I also take issue of like Michael's still going to kill Anna Lucia in this moment. I think Michael sees like the gun. He gets the opportunity to do this. It doesn't feel like this was like Michael's calculated plan was to kill Anna Lucia. It yeah, feels gotta, like he has an opportunity to grab the gun and shoot her and kill her and, you know, bust the guy out. I, I really do wonder how he, how would, I wonder how he would have subdued her had he not had Michael versus Anna Lucia. I don't like Michael's odds in that. No, nope, I a think fair Michael, fight. I think that is the worst plan he could pursue is he, if yes. he's not armed. Yes, yes. Like, if anything, maybe Michael should have had sex with Sawyer to get the gun. (laughs) That could have been the better move, for sure. Though I guess Uh, that's the thing, is that Anna tells Michael, you know, Sawyer has the guns, and that's news to Michael. If Michael had known about that, I actually think there could have been a strategy where, like, he steals a gun from Sawyer to do that. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think that that could have worked. He's still working it out. He hadn't come up with a plan yet, I don't think. Um, Speaking of Jim Fells, how was the Jim Fells uh, music analysis this week? Oh, there was a lot of fun stuff in this one. A lot of juicy little music nuggets to dig into. I love uh, little music nuggets. Uh, they're 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 hearty. Uh, so there's like a dream song that has now been substantiated. Uh, so like when Echo has the dream with Anna Lucia at the beginning. Again, comparisons to Deus Ex Machina. Uh, when Locke does the infamous Teresa falls up the stairs, Teresa falls down the stairs dream. It's the exact same music. The discovery of the pearl is actually a big mashup of not one, not two, not three, but four. It's a magic different number. Themes. Uh, there's the hatch theme from all the best daddies when Boot and Locke discover the hatch in the ground. There's the motif from when Locke and Jack are arguing about pushing the button in orientation. There's Echo's little main motif. And there's also music from when they blew up the hatch in Exodus. So it's like a fun little callback to all the times they discovered the hatch, discovered the opening to the hatch and got into the hatch. Uh, when these screens are revealed in the Pearl, it's the beginning of a weird theme that Jim Fells calls Ben versus Widmore. And we hear it at certain places, like we'll hear it uh, when Kimi subdues Ben and Kate in There's No Place Like Home. Uh, or, you know, when Jack encounters Ben and through the looking glass and Ben tries to talk to Naomi. And there's uh, the love theme from Live to, not from a Man of Science, Man of Faith that returns. If you don't remember, that's the theme that like, plays during the Jack and Sarah stuff that comes up during the constant pops up here as well when Libby dies, but it's 
very appropriately like mix, missing the main melody and the piano as well, I think, to symbolize how obviously one half of that equation is gone. And finally, the final five minutes of the episode actually use the exact same themes as the final five minutes of next week's episode. Weird. So there, we'll talk about some parallels there. It's in, in a bit of a different order, and it's used in different ways. But I think that's cool. very interesting how these two endings sort of become siblings of one another. All right, let's get into the 23 points, Mike. Uh, I already spoiled two of mine. Uh, I have three this week. You've got two uh, MVPs, and then you've got three LVPs, and I've got two. Um, two of my three MVPs, one to Jack, one to Sawyer, for the for the reasons stated before. I think there's just like no bullshit between the two of them. They're both operating at their best. Jack is making the right call here to get the guns. This is the time to do it. He said, when I want the guns, I'll get the guns. He wants the guns. He needs the guns. Now's the time to get the guns. Oh, and Blomsky s- makes an appearance here. And and Sawyer knows, like, yeah, I'm not I'm not messing with this. Let's just get the let's get the stuff. She's in she's in extraordinary agony. Um so they're just like both like at, at, like they're they're just both very real in that moment. Um so then I'll just I'll just keep going because I think that you're gonna have this as well. A point for Echo, each of us. Yeah, right. I will I will echo that. Yeah, yeah. For um, you know, with the, obvious with, reasons, I think. Yeah, I mean, listen, he is right in his pursuit to keep pushing the button, and I think you know he follows, he discovers the the pearl. Like he he is the the if if John Locke is maybe like one of the more emotionally interesting parts of the episode, Echo is the one that's moving us forward in many ways, and I want to give him credit for that. He is the trailblazer in that way. Going back to Jack for a second, something I forgot to bring up: his bedside manner with the Libby stuff. Do you think it stems from a the the you know the whole boon of it all with them letting you off the hook and his just uh, gr- lessening of passion when it comes to needing to keep someone alive and like throwing himself wholeheartedly emotionally into it? B him not really knowing Libby or C both. Um, I think also I, I don't know. I think I think this one is like a very obvious lost cause. You know, like, I think that this, like, they're walking into a situation that seems, like, fairly straightforward. This woman was shot. And, like, it's pretty easy to, like, connect the dots on, like, what happened. Um, and she's not going to make it. Um, whereas with Boone, like, he was just really, like, going to fight tooth and nail uh, to save his life because he was operating from a faulty premise at the start. While Jack is operating from a faulty premise in terms of, like, how the shooting went down, uh, you know, it's still... Uh, it's it, it's still fairly straightforward. So I, I think that that's a piece of it. That, like He knows that she's going to die, and really the only thing to do right now is to like ease her passing. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I would also imagine, too, that like I think letting you off the hook did let Jack off the hook a bit in terms of like he's going to have many moments, right, when he has to save somebody. And I can imagine that there is a bit of hardening after that experience. And so I can imagine having stared in the face of someone who he couldn't save directly on the island, that every time he has to do that, it gets... Not a little bit better, but at least a little less traumatizing, as maybe. that is to yeah. say. Yeah, maybe. Um, um, so we have one more MVP point from on my plate. I'm going to give it to Hurley. As I mentioned before, it's a sympathy point partially, but also Jorge Garcia shows a, a new side of the character and a new side of his acting chops here. So I want to, and mutton chops as well, as he starts to really, they're really coming in now at this point. They really are. They look great. I wish I could grow something like that. I don't have it in me. No, to the point, I cannot either, to the point when I was in uh, my sophomore year high school production of Les Miserables, they had to take, like, fake hair and spirit gum them on <laughs> to make it look like we had... The at- Dharma brand theatrical glue? 
I mean, I certainly hope so. Uh, it was a very gooey, hey, substance. Who, who were you in Les Mis? I was Jolie, one of the the students, part of the student brigade that ends up dying. I remember one of my big moments was when Spoiler all the students... Spoiler alert, jeez. Well, when all the students die on the barricade, I decided in that moment that my big thing was I was on the ladder, because I was the lookout, and I was going to die hanging off the ladder. Oh, uh, but and, isn't that the leader's spot? No, the leader, he... But he's um, hanging upside down, right? That's in, iconic. In, in, the, in the original thing, but yeah, there are certain parts of Les Miserables, like the, the red Look flag... Look at you, you little ham. You had to steal the leader's moment. Exactly. It was my time. <laughs> it was my place. No, I remember what... I think, I think he died at the top of the barricade. Yeah. I think he, like, fell off the barricade. But I remember it being pretty bad, because... After the students die in Les Miserables, there's like this very soft-spoken version of uh, Bring Him Home playing as they go into the sewers uh, because Jean Valjean takes Marius down there to save yeah, his life. of course. Uh, and I remember it took such a long time, and me deciding to hang upside down meant that the blood rushed to my head within yeah, the Yeah, how first long 30- were you upside down for? Probably like three minutes, four minutes? Yeah, because it, it was a... Sl- they Let's slow- call it three minutes. Let's they be on slowly brand. rotated the barricade <laughs> yeah. to like obscure us, and yeah. I just remember being like, this is a terrible decision. Oh, uh, what did you do? What you a- tried to be in the moment. You tried to be the big ham to steal the spotlight at the what last a- second. What a microcosm of Mike Bloom. This is you in a nutshell. You just put yourself out there, and you suffer the consequences for it, Mike, but we love watching it. It's just bodily harm <laughs> for you but nothing but joy for us and also we should mention that i did have like basically pubes glued to my face while this was happening mvp points for mike bloom this week (laughs) um all right lvp points uh to the to the theater department gluing pubes to your face (laughs) Uh, i think it's an lvp point um other than that uh, I, I'm gonna give an LVP point to the passport douche because I hate that guy. Uh, and I'll give another one to Richard Malkin because F that guy as well. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'll throw two more points onto Richard Malkin. Yeah, good, good. He deserves, like, he deserves he's, he's, it. He's not treating his kids well. Like, his no, daughter's alive. Like, yeah. don't, don't put her in a corner and have her creepily stare at Mr. Echo. Yeah, you're um, weird. Though. I maybe we'll give him some, like, I'll give him some some below the table extra credit if indeed he is like sort of working under Isaac to like get Echo on that plane. I, I should note, by the way, I didn't give an LVP point to Libby who dies in this episode, uh, and I think that is because like she she dies uh, in in a way where like she is she is trying with her final ounces of energy to like bring to justice the person who did it. Mm. Uh, it's a very very sad thing for Hurley, and I just can't I can't do an LVP point on on Libby when Hurley's looking like that. Uh, so I, I will, I, I almost gave her an MVP point actually, but I thought that Jack Sawyer and Echo were all worthy of one. And so that's a, that's an interesting, uh, denotation I think you should make, right? Is that like, it's not a blanket. If you die, you get an LVP point. I think it depends on like the intent with which you die. To well, a certain yeah, I think it's just all subjective and sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. Um, so I, so yeah, I threw two points onto Melkin and I'm going to give my final LVP point to the exact opposite of Echo in this circumstance. I'm going to give it to Mr. John Locke. In that he ends up being dissuaded to the point where he's going to pursue this philosophy and say, I was wrong in the season finale. Uh, You know, he is someone who is continually being brought forward with this purpose and continually says, like, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. And he's ultimately incorrect about it. So, again, we talked about how I think we can understand where he's coming from. But I think from an objective standpoint, the fact that he is indeed wrong with the choices that he makes has to get him an LVP point here. 
Yeah. All right. So let's talk about uh, where we're standing as we're heading into three minutes um, with the MVPs, LVPs. Mr. Echo remains the front runner here in season two. Yeah, uh, and after being absent in points for, for a while, like, for a, a little long, while, long, I would say maybe I don't know about points. I guess when's the last time we really had like it's a been a minute. Echo it's day? been it's been a little while. So right now he's got 14 MVP points from season two, all from season two. Very impressive. And he is uh, five points behind Saeed's grand total of 19 right now. So Saeed's mm. still the series leader, but Echo's the season two leader. Echo, uh, Saeed has 10 MVP points from season two thus far. Uh, so that's that's impressive as as well. Uh, so um, I I think that Echo is probably going to keep it, but Saeed has potential to get a bunch next week because he's going to bust yep. the Michael plan. And, um, and arguably in the season finale as well, right? It's possible. It's possible. masterfully yeah. sails the boat. He finds out that the, the whole door is a fraud. Uh, and I believe Jack, with another point, like I think he's in third place overall, which is pretty yeah. crazy. Jack's doing well. All right. All right. So... Let's get to the 4.2 stars, the episode rankings, in which I give a score from 0 to 4.2. So does Mike. So does the audience. We average the audience score uh, for the third data point, and then we average that data point, Mike's score, and my score for the fourth official Down the Hatch score. And you could send those scores in to us at downthehatchatpostshowrecaps.com. Scores. Uh, you could send that to downthehatchatpostshowrecaps.com. And I want to say something. So today, uh, we have a, you know, a document that we work from. And I signed into the document uh, as I was about to plug in my notes and everything, and I hadn't ranked the episode yet. And I saw uh, that three of the four data points have been filled. The Mike Bloom score, the audience score, and the official down the hatch score at that point. Mike's score, to spoil it, was a 3.7 out of 4.2. The audience score was a 3.7 out of 4.2, which meant at that moment in time, that the score officially for Down the Hatch was a 3.7. So it was three 3.7s in a row. Who am I to question the, 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 the repeating pattern of 3.7 for question mark? So I'm giving it a 3.7 as well. And that's a 3.7 all the way across the board between my score, Mike's score, the audience score, and the Down the Hatch score. And I'm going to lock that one up. No one yeah. can ever rank no, question everyone mark. Everyone from now on has to rate it 3.7, <laughs> please. Like We need to keep the unanimity here. We're never going to find this again. We're not going to mess with it. We're not, we're not logging any scores for question mark here on out. We're not going to question this. It's a 3.7 across the board. If I search my heart of hearts, I think it's maybe a tiny bit higher. Uh, like maybe a 3.8 for me, maybe a 3.9, like about the same as the hunting party for me. Um, but I'm fine with a 3.7. I think that's at least in the general range of this episode. And uh, you could maybe speak more to why you graded it that way, because I really just did it to maintain the 3.7. Yeah, I would love to, actually. So, yeah, I mean, I was coming to this, and I think the positives are... There's a reason why the vast majority of sounds I pulled were from the second half of the episode, and it's because, to me, the second half of this episode is dynamite. Yeah. I think there is a lot of great stuff between the discovery of the Pearl, between the you know crisis of faith for John Locke and the renewal of faith for Echo, Libby's death. I think that is all really well done. Where it docks points for me... First, I am, I am not high on the flashback whatsoever. Yeah, like, I when think I, the flashback's not good. Yeah, when I when I judge flashbacks of of this in this rewatch, I try to think about like what does this tell me about the character? It literally feels like it's only there because like we gotta well we gotta find out why Echo was in Australia and, and we don't even find that out, right? <laughs> 
you know, like he's bouncing around. So like, that's fine. But like, do we, did we really need a flashback for that? That's like the same ethos that gets us the Jax tattoos. Exactly. Or, or like whatever the case may be. right? Right. It's this idea of like, we are, I, in my opinion, we're not learning anything new about the character and even the the most be- some of the most begrudged flashbacks we still learn something about the character that i think gives me at least some appreciation and like i was not i didn't feel like we needed a return of richard malkin i feel like this whole you know possible resurrection possibly not thing even though we've tried to headcanon it out is not really that appealing in my opinion and i've talked about how i feel like maybe as a follow-up to two for the road this isn't an episode that i think like completely knocks it out of the park. It doesn't completely follow it up from the excitement of that ending in a way that gets your heart pumping. Though, again, I understand maybe it's because of the episode order and they want to save some revelations for three minutes and live together, die alone. I'm not sure how I feel about it as a follow-up. So, you know, I I gave, like, SOS a 3.6. I gave the other 48 days a a 3.8. I sort of feel like it was nestled in there for me. I would consider, like, the 3.4 to 3.7 area, like, a, a, a... a good episode of Lost, like a pretty good middle yeah, of the road I like, episode I, of Lost. I would say that that's like a very good episode of Lost, and most episodes of Lost are very good. Um, like that's that's where I would go with it. Um, but I I feel I I can I can imagine the scenario where because I think some of the questions literally uh, of uh, of of faith uh, are are really compelling and, and really good yeah. for the lifeblood of the series. And I and I do think that like those scenes between John and Echo are are really strong, especially towards the end, and some really great acting from Jorge Garcia as as well. And still just sort of like the tension of like what the hell is going on down here? What's up with Michael? Is uh you know, could could it have been explored a little bit better? I almost think that having this additional week to like sweat that out um, kind of helps with the tension. Um, like elongates the tension, makes you feel even even more hot in hell. Uh, like I, I I think that that's fine. Um, but I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mistake coincidence for fate. Exactly. This, this episode's a three point seven all across the board. So I'm not gonna sh- I'm not rocking the boat. I'm not gonna be the guy. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna fall in line and I'm gonna give this a three point seven. We've all given it a three point seven. Uh, cumulatively, you the audience, whether you actually gave it a three point seven or you contributed to that average, it's a three point seven across the board. And that means question mark right now is the ninth best episode of season two behind in order two for the road lockdown man of science man of faith the 23rd psalm one of them orientation the long con the other 48 days and then we get to question mark um i think that that is a good uh i i think that works i think that works i think season two right now it looks right to me uh based on these rankings i would agree and i think you know the 23rd psalm is all the way up at number four and i think it's a better episode for sure yeah, and I think we, we're all sort of grading it, like, a few steps down from the 23rd Psalm, which makes sense, and that, like, it's a worse Echo episode, but I would not say not, like, a, sh- a shoot to the bottom. I think no. there are, like you said, there's some great stuff to enjoy about it. There are some not-so-great things, but I will agree that... I mean, Echo's one of the most consistent characters in terms of flashback episodes, exactly. because there's only three of them, uh, and they're yeah. all at least really good. Uh, exactly. Some of them are excellent. Two of them are excellent, and one of them is really good. This is the really good one. Exactly. So yeah. So I mean, now we 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 say goodbye to Mr. Echo, and we're gonna approach Josh our like last regular episode of yeah, season baby. two. I cannot believe it's finally here. All right. So three minutes is coming next week. Uh, get your feedback in by the morning of June twenty fourth. Uh, we will be uh, dropping that podcast in your feed 
next week. Send your feedback in down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. You can also send in your star ratings, your 4.2 star ratings. Uh, don't just like troll us with 3.7s for everything moving forward. Uh, this, this is special. In fact, is 3.7 retired as a score? Yeah, nobody created like a 3.7 <laughs> no. bot that just keeps sending us 3.7s for everything. <laughs> no, very exciting. Uh, so we'll be back with the Michael Dawson flashback extravaganza. We'll see. Uh, do we feel bad for him? Do we feel uh, angrier at him? Uh, I think like uh, we've been we've been saving a lot of our Michael uh, Michael discourse, Michael, uh, for this podcast next week, and I'm very excited to get into it yeah i'm very intrigued by this i remember this is the one that obviously everyone was looking forward to right we see it at the very end of question mark this idea of like what did michael do and we get it answered it's a little weird it still brings up you know other questions and we see a little bit more of the the guys that the others are putting up we finally get to meet miss clue which is a fun little relic of lost and here's another top 20 iconic ending, Josh, as determined by Brand Steel. Oh, that's right, that's right. The, the boat, as some yes. will say many times. Yes, that's right, that's right. So the boat is coming. Uh, the truth about Michael is about to arrive as well. And uh, Desmond is about to re-arrive as well, at least in boat form, not in real <laughs> human form. What it's if like, Desmond a is a transformer, yeah, exactly, yeah. and he can turn into a boat? Yeah. Mike Bloom, like, what, what else do you have going on outside of uh, transforming Desmond boats? Yeah, well, now I just have the image in my head of Desmond being like, we don't need Penny's boat. Yeah. I'll take off the islands and just yeah. transforming into the freighter. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, if we're speaking about putting myself on the line for entertainment value, you know, a, a while ago, Josh, I made a promise it is to Rob your says, chief, It's your chief talent, I think. I, I, listen, if that's my chief talent at this point, there could be a lot worse that could yes, be my I talent. Yes, I agree. I uh, agree. So we, we have finally... Put the gears into motion as to getting the survivor tattoo, I promise, of enough people donated to Rob Cesarino's very great direct relief fund for frontline workers. Uh, so myself, Rob, and Jessica Lee are going to get together on the Rob Has a Podcast main feed to cast that season. Y'all had some crazy ideas, so we're certainly going to get into that. Outside of that, uh, covering Survivor on the B&B as well. And also, Josh, you and I, as part of a group of... Very, very fun Top Chef fans are going to be recapping the finale of this season of Top Chef All-Stars, though it will certainly not be the last time that we get together to talk about literally anything. Yeah, we'll figure out a way to to, to get back together post-Top Chef. I am sure of it. Uh, that idea has not been solidified yet. Uh, but that Top Chef podcast, is uh, as, a, as a weekly Saturday morning recording ritual, uh, has been uh, a huge mental health boon. So uh, not Shannon. And, and Shannon, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, so hopefully, uh, you are listening to that. And if not, it's not too late. Uh, all those podcasts are out there on, uh, the reality TV wrap ups feed. Uh, we are going to be back next week with some more loss as we are getting very, very close to the end of the line here on season two, three minutes next week. I'm sure we are going to go for many more minutes than just three as we talk about three minutes. Take care, everybody. Goodbye. Four, eight, fifteen, sixteen, twenty-two, forty-two, four, eight, fifteen, sixteen, twenty-two, forty-two, four, eight, fifteen, sixteen, twenty-two.